Hi, everyone. It's unfortunately time to report another in memoriam for a beloved creator in the anime manga space. And we must sadly report today the passing of a true veteran, a true master of the manga medium. Takao Saito, creator of Golgo 13, one of the most iconic manga franchises and the longest running manga, sadly passed away on September 24th from pancreatic cancer at the age of 84. Takao Saito's legacy in Gekiga in creating the character Golgo 13 is just innumerable, he's a true master of his craft and uh, even in the later years even though a lot of the drawing duty on gogo was passed off of an insistence he would always draw his face he would always draw his face even if the rest of it was drawn by other people he was still very hands-on with that series and with manga for up until he passed away and it has been announced by chicago Khan that gogo 13 his legacy, his last work, it is going to continue on after his passing with Saito Production, the group of artists that he has been producing the manga with for many, many years now. They're going to continue the series with assistance of Big Comics Editorial Department and more writing staff. So, Gogo 13 and Takao Saito's legacy will live on. His legacy will live on in the innumerable other works he created. He'll live on in the influence he's had on manga, the influence he had on mature adult comics as one of the pioneers of Gekika. And even though that legacy will lot on, he will be sadly missed. And I just wanted to take a few moments to just pay our respects. A true blue professional. Right up to the end. This is the Manga Mavericks Podcast from AllComic.com, episode 178. We are a podcast not only dedicated to talking about manga as a medium, but as an industry. I'm Colton. And I'm Lamariasha, and today we have one heck of a Cyberpods Roundup for you, because we have a lot of series, not just from Shonen Jump, but from Starfruit Books, from Comic-E, even some strays from Yen Press and Kadokawa. So there is a lot to talk about, 15 different series, and we'll do our best to cover them as comprehensively as possible. Oh, man. Yeah, we just want to apologize for uh, how long it's kind of taken us to get to some of these, because some of these are definitely about a month or two old at this point, uh, especially some of the one shots. But um, we're getting to them now, and that's all that matters. And we have a lot to talk about. Uh, Spoiler alert, some of these uh, were pretty good. And yeah, I can't wait to talk about them. But uh, I think even before we kind of get on to everything else, uh, we actually do have like a small amount of news that I think uh, we should get around to. 
uh, Lama, if you want to go ahead and start off with the first thing. Well, the My Hero Academia World Heroes mission film is coming out in theaters later this month, and looks like moviegoers are going to get a special booklet, a 76-page booklet, over that opening weekend. Basically similar to what uh, Japanese Trans got. It's going to be Volume W Specialty Manga Booklet. It's going to have a specialty manga. Never before translated into English, apparently. And also apparently not done by the team in Viz, which is kind of strange. But yeah, like, that'll be in there. And it'll have probably some interview stuff and some character design stuff and all sorts of things. So... Yeah, a fun little bonus treat if you go to see World Heroes Mission on opening weekend. Oh, man. I'm very excited because, uh, small update, uh, I do have my ticket to go see World Heroes Mission on the 29th. So I'm hopefully going to have my ch- have a chance to get this booklet, which will be pretty fun. Uh, I'm really hoping because, you know, like you said, apparently the team at Viz is not going to be working at, on this in particular. So... I'm really hoping, like, the quality doesn't suffer because of it. Yeah. So that does kind of have me worried a little bit, but it'll still be, like, a pretty a pretty cool, like, goodie kind of thing. Like, I think this is the first time, like, we've really had, like, something like this for an anime screening. I mean, I know, like, you know, for, for like, the only thing I could think of would be, like, for the Yu-Gi-Oh! movies, I know you would get, like, special, like, cards or whatever, but I think this is the first time we've gotten, like, you know, like these special, like, volume zero manga type of booklet things. I certainly have never gone booklet before. Most of the time, it's, like, posters and art cards when I've attended, like, some screening with some special goodies given out. So, yeah, this is a first, or it is a rare occasion for sure. I hope we get these more often because I've always been kind of sad that, like, we never really had the chance to get these and now we do. And maybe hopefully they'll do more of these in the future. I'm I'm, I'm really excited to get my copy and also see the movie. So really looking forward to that. Yeah. Next, we got a cool new Kickstarter from Nozomi for Dirty Pair, the classic anime franchise about some freelance trouble consultants for hire. The classic anime series is getting a Kickstarter to put it all on Blu-ray and to fund an English dub of the TV series for the first time. And it's pretty exciting because the actress who played Yuri in the OVA series has been confirmed to return to play her for the dub of the TV series. And the campaign has already exceeded its funding goal. It is now well on its way for stretch goals, including... A special comedy track from Mike Tool. So a lot of exciting bonuses as this gets funded. You get some cool lamps at one of the tiers, which I think look pretty neat. You only At the tier you pledge to get the lamps, you can only get one of them. So you have to add the other one as an add-on. But they look pretty cool. And then the show itself, having it all on Blu-ray... Looks pretty awesome. Dirty Period series I've definitely been keen to check out more of, and definitely am excited to see that it's getting a dub now thanks to this Kickstarter. And this Kickstarter campaign is still going on, and it's going to go on strong for another couple of weeks, about two more weeks by the time you're listening to this. So if you want to get your hands on a Dirty Pair Blu-ray and some of these other special goodies included with the Kickstarter campaign, like those lamps and shirts and shot glasses and all sorts of good stuff, definitely give this a support. Always love seeing classic anime get 
these kind of campaigns to give it like a premium re-release, put it in our Blu-ray, getting it redub, and this is definitely one I think you'd want to show your support to if you're a fan of like classic comedy sci-fi action anime. And similarly, if you want to check out the show, it is now also streaming on Retro Crush and Crunchyroll. That's pretty cool. I- I've always wanted to check this out, so I- it might it might be time to do so soon. Mm-hmm. And the last piece of news we want to mention is that Mission Yuzakura Family, in celebration of its 100th chapter, is currently running a character popularity poll. Its first ever character popularity poll running from, well, it's going to run until October 25th. So you still have like a week or two by the time you're listening to this to vote on it. So yeah, vote on your favorite Yuzakura characters and we'll see what the results of the poll will be. Like who will be the fan favorites? Um, Have you voted yet? I did. And... I voted for Mutsumi because, okay. I don't know, I like her. Mm. See, I thought about voting for Shinzo at first, but um, I looked through the list of characters just to see who was on there, and um, I couldn't help it. I voted for the stick figure guy. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, they have the fun, like, fan-submitted characters, so yeah, those are those are fun inclusions. I'm going to be curious to see how far they rank. That was a good chapter, by the way. That was... I think that actually might be one of my favorite chapters of the series. Yeah. The one where all the fan-submitted characters just are, like, hunting down Tayo. Yeah, it's very funny. It is pretty good. Like, there, there's there's no way I couldn't vote for that character in particular. It was it was too good of an opportunity to pass up. I'm, I'm, I'm all about a good, like, gag vote in, you know. Um, but, yeah, I'm, in- I'm interested in seeing what the results of this uh, popularity poll will be. Um... I'm going to say Tile's probably going to be number one because he's the main character. But hey, you know what? People could surprise me. You know, it's it's not too uncommon that some Shonen Jump series have certain characters that are po- more popular than the main characters. It's happened before, so I guess we'll have to see. Yeah, I mean, I think all the Yozakura family are pretty popular, so we'll see which one of them's uh, rank out on top. I do see Tile probably being uh, near the top. Moots me too. Actually, someone someone I think could rank higher than Tayo might be Kyoichiro. Yeah, you know, Japanese fans seem to really like the doting, obsessive older brothers towards their younger sister siblings types. So we've seen it with Gauche and uh, Black Clover. And then there's Lance and Mashal. But yeah, you know. As far as those kinds of characters go, um, I think he's like, you know, he's like an okay version of that. I still, I think he's a good character, like outside of that, or at the very least, he's a pretty cool one, I think. Yeah, I'm back and forth on Kyochiro. Uh, That's fair. Not my favorite <laughs> character in Yozakura family, but I don't hate him as much as other characters of his archetype or other fans of the series do. I like him more than Gosh if I, if I really had to choose, but that, that's just me. I'd probably take Gosh over him in terms of like Gosh's moments in Black Clover and his character development but uh, mm, okay he's not there was a good chapter with Kyochiro recently you know when he got turned into a kid form yeah that was a nice he one he actually had a cute relationship with Tayo and talked about being sad about his mother having passed away and all that so, you know that was a good character chapter for him mm-hmm. I thought that was a good chapter of like actually kind of digging into and exploring like why he turned out the way he has I mean, obviously, it doesn't, like, excuse it, but, like, it, it was kind of interesting to see, like, where he started and, like, exactly kind yeah, of, like, where his yeah. protectiveness from Mutsumi comes from and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Kind of made it a little tragic, I think. Um, it was it was, it was, was an interesting, like, character exploration for him. I really appreciated it. But um, that, that's enough Vishen Yorzakura family talk. Um, 
And I think that's about it for, like, all the news we wanted to cover. We wanted to keep it short, but obviously there were still, like, a few pieces we thought we should, like, get out there before we get to our next, like, news roundup in the few weeks here or so. But um, I think we should finally get on to all of our cyber pubs and one-shots. And uh, I think, Lum, we wanted to start off with uh, uh, at least our first one-shot. We're going to start with the one-shots first, I, t- I should say. Um, and I think we should start off with the with the one uh, that we got from Starford Books pretty recently, if you want to talk about what that one's about. Yes, by Tatsuo Ihara, and lettered by our good friend Aiden. I also want to give him a shout out. Yeah. But yeah, this is kind of a period piece set in kind of the post-war baby boom in Japan in the late 50s, particularly during the Obon period in early August, August 1359, in a prefecture uh, village in Saitama, just outside of Tokyo Yashio Village. Basically, the story follows a midwife, and it mainly deals with conversations about what is the role of midwife in a point in time where Japanese medicine was being increasingly influenced by American and westernized systems including hospitals being the primary place of childcare and delivering babies so what is the role of a midwife in that kind of environment and then the primary crux and the the drama of this the chapter is that you know her daughter is pregnant and originally she was scheduled to give birth in September but she ends up giving birth like a month early so you know she has to deliver her daughter's child but it turns out that they're twins and the other twin is coming out feeds first so that's a very delicate operation and it's very stressful for both the mother and for Toki but she manages to deliver the baby like even after a scare of like worrying oh no is the baby born stillborn and she's able to resuscitate it and so you know both babies are born very happily it's kind of a mediation on both life and that because as this is going on, she's also reflecting on her husband who had passed away in the war and died overseas uh, while fighting in China. And so then, of course, Oban being a celebration of the souls of the dead where you light candles and whatnot and let lights to guide the way for the spirits of the dead and stuff. So it's both like a mediation paying respects to those that pass and then the celebration of new life and kind of Toki reflecting on her role as someone who, you know, by delivering these children for these couples in the poor store period, she's kind of providing them with new light in their lives after a period of, you know, great hardship for a lot of people in Japan post-war. So yeah, it's a very sweet story. It's a little... It gets to a point where it's somewhat preachy in his elements where they're talking about epistotomies, which are, you know, when you cut over the perineum to make it easier to deliver babies. And it's a good commentary because at that point in time, like between the 30s and 80s, epistotomies were considered routine procedure for delivering babies. But in the 80s, it was found out that the routine use was not only unnecessary and unhelpful in a lot of cases in which you were to deliver babies, but also oftentimes when used in situations where it was uncalled for, it would have like kind of harmful side effects like muscle damage and infections and stuff like that. So nowadays, uh, epistotomies are only used you know, during specific circumstances where they're absolutely necessary for the health of the mother and the child rather than being a routine thing. So it's important. It is like a correct commentary on that in terms of criticizing that. 
And then it is also a worthy thing to think about. Well, yeah, and this point of like increasing modernization move towards like hospitals, like what would a freelance midlife uh, midwife, you know, think about like the future of her career. And obviously there's still freelance midlifes even now today. But yeah, like it's a good reflection on changing times and then also thinking about like what her role in life is, is to help deliver new lives into the world and provide new life and happiness for the family she's helping. And I think it's a very sweet story in that respect. Uh, and I think the, the character is very interesting fairly on point although a little outdated considering yet yeah like it was found out and episiotomies are not like a routine practice today when delivering babies but yeah very cool story reflecting that and i believe like this is written from the perspective like ihara's uh, grandmother was a midwife and so this is also reflecting on kind of her role in delivering children and kind of paying respect to that so i also appreciate it from that perspective as well Mm-hmm. I, I had the sense that, like, th- this was based on, like, some kind of real-life experience, considering, like, you know, th- there is a picture of her and her grandmother at the very end, which I, I thought uh, was very sweet. I thought this was interesting. Um, Again, big ups to Starfruit Books for bringing out, I think, some of the more, like, interesting one-shot manga that I've read recently. And yeah, I, I just thought this, this was like a really interesting read. You learn a lot about, I really appreciate learning a lot about delivering children. Now, obviously the techniques that Toki uses, a lot of them are considered unsafe by modern standards, like slapping the baby on the back to try and revive it or spitting water on its stomach. But still, it was an interesting look back at like, different procedures in delivering children and like different things they kept in mind back then yeah and also i think it was very interesting to see like okay this is the situation of how you very carefully deliver a baby when they're coming out feed first because that is a very dangerous and tricky situation because obviously the head coming out last that you know can be difficult because it's so the biggest part of the body coming out of the uterus like it is it's starting at a point where it's starting to contract, which makes it even more difficult, and it's has the potential of choking uh, the umbilical cord, which could risk suffocating child. So it's a very tricky, stressful thing, and it's interesting seeing that and learning, like how a midwife would approach delivering a child who is get, coming out like that. I, I really started to feel the drama and tension when it was revealed, like, oh, she's having twins, and oh, like the baby's coming out this way, and oh man, like. I was genuinely afraid for a second that we were going to end up with, like, a dead baby. Like, I was actually kind of afraid it was going to, like, go horribly, horribly wrong. So That'd be such a dark, especially because a lot of it is, like, also her reflecting on her husbands who passed away. That'd be just too much of a downer. Mm -hmm. No, for sure. I'm I'm glad that didn't happen, but... I couldn't help but think like, oh man, I hope this doesn't go badly. Like I was, I was really, I was really into it near the end. Um, and I, I think Toki as a character is really interesting too, especially with like how she still kind of deals with the trauma of like uh, going through the big Kanto earthquake as a kid and trying to save the life of somebody buried under the rubble. And um, I'm, I'm assuming metaphorically, like their life, like, you know, disappearing and like, uh, you know, right in front of her. Yeah, that flashback to the Great Counter Earthquake was pretty harrowing, yeah. And then also her helping her grandmother also deliver a child during that 
situation too is also yeah you can see like how her experience is kind of precariously navigating this line between life and that kind of both prepared her for the situation but also kind of gives her that trauma to back her mind that makes her scared of something going wrong when the baby seemingly is born stillborn so yeah Mm-hmm. And uh, I think the art for this is really great, too, especially the color work, which is, I think, honestly, really amazing. Yeah, with the lights in the city. Yeah, like saving the pages for like when the second child is born and then also for the two pages where we're, you know, at the open as well as being held and we're seeing the entire skyline of the city light up. It's just very beautiful. Oh, yeah. Beautiful use of green and yellowish colors contrasting with the blue night sky. Mm-hmm. I, I really love it with like digital stuff in particular, how, you know, you're able to just kind of randomly bring in color during like a certain like really big moments, which is also something we're going to talk about with another cyberpunk like later on in the show. But uh, I, I really love it when manga does that because it's just not something I see like a ton of series and one shots do. And also we said it at the top, but like Real kudos to Aiden's work on this one shot, because I think he did a really good job with a lot of the sound effects and uh, lettering in general. Absolutely. Though, I'm remiss that I have to mention that there is one typo I noticed where there's a spacing error on page 30 where of and giving, there's no space between of and giving. I think I noticed that too, actually. But no, overall, brilliant work by Aiden. Obviously, we're big fans of his letter, (laughs) and this was a fantastic work. For sure, for sure. Very appropriate text for the art, I think. Yeah, the lettering never, like, took me out of it at all, which I think is, it like, a- again, it's good lettering is the kind where, like, you shouldn't have to, you shouldn't notice it too much at all. Like I said, I mean, I, I think Aiden just did a really good job. Not much else to say there. Um, and yeah, in general, like, I remember seeing Starford Books, like, tweet out about this, but, like, I didn't really know, like, anything about it going in, so I... Uh, I wasn't really expecting, like, what the subject matter of the one-shot was going to be. But yeah, I I just thought it was interesting. Like, in general, I thought it was... Again, I I appreciate manga that are, like, slightly educational, uh, especially something like this that, like, is a real snapshot of, like, you know, of a certain time and place, like you said, in a a certain portion of history where things are, like, you know, transitioning from one period to another. And as certain, like, uh, modern things and technology and everything, like, kind of evolve. Like, it's interesting to, like, see those transitionary points, especially during a time where I was definitely not alive. So, you know. Um, But yeah, overall, I I thought it was pretty good. Um, I don't know if there's anything else we have to say about this one. No, I think, once again, I appreciate Star for Books bringing over these kind of titles that, you know, that a lot of uh, other publishers might pass them but they are very like interesting and compelling short stories and mm-hmm. yeah i really appreciate it again like this look at a subject matter and a point of time that is not often depicted in manga or at least manga that i tend to discover and read mm-hmm. and yeah for those who are interested in reading this one shot uh it is available on the starfruit books website and we'll, we'll obviously leave a link to this and, like, everything else we talk about in the show in the show notes for anyone who's interested in reading anything we, t- uh, we talk about on this episode. But, uh, yeah, if, if you haven't checked out Star- anything from Starford Books yet, um, you should definitely do so. Uh, we really love their stuff, and hopefully we'll have the chance to talk more about the releases in the future. And, yeah, I think with that, we can go into not just the rest of our one-shots, but kind of into basically everything that's come out from Shonen Jump over the past, like, couple months. And 
Lum, I'm going to let you take over this one because I want you to tell me all about this Bleach one-shot. Okay, so the basic trust of it is that this is set 12 years after the end of Bleach. Not after the time scale of the end of Bleach, it's still it's set like a few months after the final Final Chapter of Bleach, but it's basically 12 years after the defeat of Muhabak, or Wok, whatever you want to call him. But basically... They are doing this ceremony to honor the dead captains that have passed away because apparently it's a custom that 12 years after a Soul Society captain has passed away or lost in battle, they like hold like their funeral rites and they've already done it for like Unohana and then Yamamoto, but now they're doing one for Ukitake and they fight Ichigo to attend them. And basically what they do at the ceremony, which is called a Kanzureisai, is that they capture a hollow and they sacrifice it in front of their grave, which Ojiko points out, isn't that kind of barbaric? But Renji's like, eh, well, it's an old custom. There must be a reason for it. Turns out there is a reason for it because, you know, as they're about to do this Kanzureisai ceremony, they get attacked by like hollows from hell and these hollows are led by zale opera who if you had read the one shot that was a tie-in for bleach Moon before hell to fate hellverse like you would know that zale opera went to hell he met the villains of those movies and i don't know if like the that aspect of it is canon, but the canon is still that yeah zale opera went to hell and so he comes back and he basically is just there to kind of taunt Ichigo and team, I guess, like, what's happening is because the, the Soul Society captains, you know, they have a lot of spiritual power in Reishi. And so that's, like, too much for them to actually pass on naturally. So when they die, their spirits are, have actually just lingered here in the human world. They can't return to Soul Society. So what they do is that they do this Kanzo-Kereisai ceremony to actually cast the captain's souls into hell. And so that's what they had actually been doing with Unohana and Yamano, not what they're doing with Ukitake. And so basically, Zao Opera, while he's playing Ichigo, is just taunting him that all this time, like, they have been sending their dead friends' souls into hells. But now that... There are so many powerful spiritual pressures in hell. And now that Aizen and Yuak are no longer in commission or can, like, do anything to, like, you know, keep the forces of hell back. Like, the jaws of hell are opening. And so now, like, basically all the spirits from hell are threatening to seep out into the living world. And Ichigo unwittingly was tricked by the Alaparo into, like, slattering hollows and beasts of hell that completed the ceremony that cast Ukitake's own the hell. So now a bunch of shit looks like it'll hit the fan. It's like there's some super powerful spiritual pressures in hell that'll cause more spirits to seep out into the living world. And what seems might be the key to this is that Kazui, Ichigo's kid seemingly has been able to go in and out of hell as he leads like a spirit earlier into the chapter, like into a door that's like similar to the mount of uh, how you get into hell. So, and there's also the black hell butterflies that are coming out of it, which is also another thing that Sail Opera taunts that you go by. Like, oh, why did you think that the the butterflies that fall so weepers around are called the hell butterflies, which is kind of a funny recontextualization. But yeah, so this one shot is interesting because it's not really a self-contained story in a sense. Like, it could be read as that, but it seemingly is setting the stage 
open for like follow up, but because like it's saying, oh, now there's a greater danger now that all the dead captain souls are in hell, and now that the gates of hell are breaking loose, and there's all this mystery because we seemingly haven't been able to go in and out of hell just at will without anyone really knowing about it, and so that leaves the door open for hey, is there going to be a future follow up to Bleach that'll be like the manga's version of the Hell Arc and the manga's version of Hell? I, I guess we'll see what Koopa wants to do. Otherwise, this is just more lore expansion, which once again casts Soul Society in the light of man, they are such a corrupt, shitty institution that they would <laughs> basically shove out their own allies into hell to get rid of them just because they can't let them linger in the human world, but they also can't accept them back in the Soul Society because their spiritual power is too high or whatever. So, yeah, just another damning piece of evidence of how. <laughs> corrupt and how messed up social science institution is but yeah and in addition to all this new uh world building stuff there were new characters introduced that feel like there's more going on and particularly a Tao, the seventh company division who's very like quiet and there seems to be an air of mystery to him and then there's also the new eight division cabin who's kind of like a gyaru and she has like kind of beast powers and stuff like that so they he introduces new characters it's like oh are we going to see more of these guys in the future or are they just like here to show hey they got new vice captains that replaced the the changing of the ranks that happened at the end of bleach because some characters died some characters do the rank all that stuff so it's interesting i'm i'm curious to see if kuba will follow up this uh with another arc of bleach or like another mini series of bleach or something because it seems like you know he opened the door he opened the gates the floodgates to that so we'll see mm. i probably should have mentioned that uh before we got into it that um i opted out of reading this one shot just because i haven't finished bleach hopefully we'll do that one day on the show maybe um but yeah from from what i've been hearing yeah i I was kind of surprised to see that, like, oh, there is a potential for, like, more follow-ups to this, which um, I think it, you know, I've said it before, but, like, I'm really happy for Kubo in that, like, he's reached a point in his career and status as a mangaka where, like, you know, he can just kind of come back to jump whenever he wants to, and he can drop either a, a new chapter of Bleach now, I guess, or, you know, more chapters of Burn the Witch just kind of on his schedule, and, you know, and he doesn't have to work for uh, he doesn't have to work every week for 15 years straight like he did with the original Bleach, you know, so so hopefully this will end up being a good thing for him. And and hopefully, you know, the, like, d- despite how any of us feel about Bleach positive or negatively, you know, uh, I'm, I'm happy for Bleach fans that they're getting more content. Lord, Lord knows they've been craving it for a long time. Yeah, it was an interesting read. And I'm curious, yeah, like I said, I'm curious to see if Google will expand on it. If not, it's uh, interesting lore to think about. This idea of like, oh man, after they died, they just sent their souls into hell. And now hell's running them up, literally. And it was fun to see Zale Opera again and then get the ball up. That, yeah, we, when we last saw Zale Opera, it was in that one shot chapter with the time of the movie that showed that he and Aaron Nero went into hell. So, I mean, that leads to question though, I guess the other dead characters. Mainly the Arankar also probably went to hell. So I wonder if like we get like a hell arc, we'll see them come back again. So I don't know. Stuff to think about. And it's very creepy imagery too. I mean, they didn't talk much about the art. But like the fight scenes, there's a lot of creepy stuff with the beast from hell. And with Zeal Hopro, there's like literally ooh seeping out of his ear, his brain. (laughs) Oh, wow. At one point, 
Like, and it's a representation of his emotions, like, literally flowing out of him. Like, his mouth is literally falling out of him. So it's very creepy stuff. Uh, I appreciate Kubo's argument, like, very intense for this. Mm-hmm, for sure. Um, but I guess unless you have anything else to to say about, you know, the new Bleach one-shot, I guess we can move on to the newest My Hero Academia one-shot. Yeah. I guess you want me to also talk about this one? Um, I mean, there's not really much to say about this one because... Yeah, it's a tie-in to the World's Hero Mission movie. It takes place right before that, where Endeavor is, like, saying, hey, you know, the World Hero Association is doing this global operation. I'm going to test you to make sure you guys are off the snuff. So you, you got to land a blow on me in three minutes. And so Deku, Todoroki, Bakugo, all are trying to attack Endeavor all at once, and it doesn't look like they're gonna hit him, but, you know, they tap into the plus ultra, go beyond the limits, and they end up overpowering Endeavor because uh, Bakugo hits him from behind, Todoroki distracts him from a blast from his side, and so Deku's able to land a punch right into his gut. And so they are approved to go on the mission, and that is basically the setup for the movie of World Heroes Mission. So yeah, pretty... Wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, type of story here. <laughs> not too much to it. Not as interesting as um, the one for the previous movie, that tie-in that explored more of uh, Nine's backstory and stuff like that. I don't think like we get the, anything super informative and necessary in here that'll enhance your appreciation of the movie. But, you know, it is a fine enough chapter. It's done by the same... Uh, team that does the Team Up Heroes spinoff manga. So there you go. Yeah, I thought this was this was fine. Like, I, I will say, like, um, Akiyama, I think, is really good at, like, sort of mimicking Horikoshi's art. And, uh, I mean, that being said, I, I think the art for this chapter is really, really good. I especially really like, uh, the, like, the big, uh, like, plus ultra spread with uh, Bakugo, Todoroki, and Deku all, uh, you know, doing their attacks and whatnot. Um, and yeah, I, I just, it, it just, it looks really good. I just don't really have a lot to say about it. It's it, again, it's one of these like special one shot chapter tie-ins for like the movie coming up or whatever. And th- they're not usually like super interesting. They're more like fan servicey in nature. Usually. Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, like that, uh, that all might one shot we got for two heroes back in the day, I think is still like the best out of these. Oh yeah. That one is, yeah, that one says, I forgot about that one. Yeah. It's like progressively they've been less interesting. At least the nine ones sort of made you appreciate him better. But yeah, this one is like, well, we don't really learn anything new about characters that are going to be in this movie or new backstory that will enhance your appreciation of what's in the movie. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, this training stuff, like, you kind of got this in the Endeavor agency arc in the series already. That's true. I don't true, think you yeah. learned too much new. About how how the, how this trio of main characters works together. So you know. Yeah, I mean it's it's fine. Like I I don't have any strong feelings on it. Uh, one way or the other. Um, it was just uh, it was a cool, uh, one off chapter with some really cool art and this not really much else you can ask for. I don't know if I have anything else to say about this. If we just want to move on to the next thing, which is actually a um. It's been a while since we've gotten one of these in particular, where we have another pretty well-established mangaka coming in to basically uh, recreate uh, a chapter or two of One Piece. With Naoshi Komi, the author of uh, Nisekoi, and they basically got to do chapters uh, 215 and 216, which is basically like the end of the Alabasta arc with, 
you know, yeah. Vivi doing her speech. The iconic yeah. farewell to Vivi. Like Vivi saying her goodbyes to Straha and then doing the iconic, you know, lifting of the arms to show the X on each of her arms that symbolizes their friendship and camaraderie from throughout the arc. So, yeah. I mean, it is basically a straightforward, like, remake of those chapters that Komi has some different uh, type of paneling. I think the main thing that's the, the, that's the strength of it is Komi's arc, which I think that a lot of characters look really good in style, particularly, like, Vivi looks great. Mm-hmm. I think Bong Clay looks very interesting. Like, he feels, like, really exaggerated in a way, but I don't think it's, like, leans into an unflattering character. But I, I just found him quite expressive. Oh, yeah, for sure. And Chopper is a very cute, very cute in Komi's style. Mm-hmm. No, I appreciate that too. Um, I, I really liked a lot of the um kind of in the middle of her speech when she's talking about like her overall journey. I really thought a lot of those pages looked really good, especially that uh that two-page spread where she's talking and she's kind of like reminiscing about uh her journey with the straw hats and we get to see moments like Yeah, yeah. that was great. Just yeah, seeing those glimpses of all the Baroque works arc. Just illustrating the journey that she's gone through with the strats that was really nice i really appreciate that mm-hmm. yeah i mean it, it's unfortunate because like i thought this was like a good recreation of those two chapters um i just don't really have like a lot to say about them because it is mostly a pretty straightforward retelling of of the end of that arc and i think in general um and you know not not to disparage you know this one shot because i still thought it was good but uh i'm just kind of over here and i mean I know, like, he's done more, but we haven't, like, gotten them officially. I just kind of want to see more of um, One Piece done in Boichi style. Like, I'm I'm still not over that recreation of the Zoro versus Mihawk fight. Like, that that was some amazing shit. <laughs> no, comparatively, like, Boichi covering that fight was... There was more to talk about there because Boichi also had that different framing device of, like, we have, like, we see from outside the the world of the One Piece world. We see, like, the Earth, and then we zoom in into the scene, and then at the end of the chapter, we zoomed out. And, of course, like, the actual action beats of Zoro Musa Mihawk, but she played around with the composition oh, yeah. and the beats of the fight in, like, dynamic ways. So I felt like he was a little more adaptive with how he approached the fight compared to Komi, which, like, we mentioned the the spread of Weebie reflecting on her adventures of the crew, but overall, like, besides, like, some expression changes, the actual composition of the pages, the flow of the story felt just a little too similar to the original. Mm-hmm. I appreciated seeing Komi's art again, and I'm still really looking forward to more work of theirs. But in terms of seeing people cover One Piece, I agree that I would really like to see that Boichi Ace manga come out over here sometime soon. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine that they're not at least like maybe looking into that at some point. I would love to check that out. Yeah, I'm surprised it hasn't been licensed already. I wonder if it's still ongoing. I'm not entirely sure. Of no, that. it ended. Oh, it okay, ended okay. Recently. Yeah. No, yeah, you're right. I, I remember that now. Um, I'm sure we'll get it eventually. Like, I think I mentioned on a previous episode that like uh when we talked about uh Posica Demizu's uh collection of uh one shots coming out uh in Japan anyway, um I wouldn't be surprised if like sometime next year maybe we'll get like a licensing announcement for both that and Boichi's uh One Piece stuff maybe. But yeah, no, um, again, not much else to say about this. Uh, I, I I thought it was a pretty good, like, recreation, but again, like you said, it's it's a lot more uh, faithful to the source material, which isn't a bad thing. It just, it just kind of makes for less to talk about, unfortunately. 
But we're actually not done with our One Piece stuff yet because we also got a fourth chapter of Shokugeki no Sanji. Um, I guess, Lum, if you want to talk real quick about like where this one takes place. This one takes place in the two-year time skip between uh, the end of Marineford and the return to Shibori, where Sanji is training on Kamigabaka Queendom to get like the hundred recipes from the culinary master of Kamigabaka Queendom, and so like even Cobb is just like trailing Sanji as he's trying his best to like fight these guys but you know they're kind of wearing him down and also they're preventing him from like cooking and getting into the kitchen because like they're guarding the kitchen so he ends up instead just roughing it in the wilderness and just making dishes like high nutritious dishes just out of local like wild ingredients which very much impresses Ivankov and that gives him the nutrition he needs to go back and challenge uh, Caroline and get like his first recipe and then continue on but and the nice thing that I appreciate is that after he got the first recipe like he basically read it and then he got so excited that he wanted to, to cook it for everyone and so he cooks it for the other like Kambaka folks that were pursuing him and he's very happy serving them like sharing his cooking so I really like that uh but yeah it's basically like a snapshot of like Sanji's training at Kamabaka Queendom like trying to get these uh like vital recipes for like nourishing like cuisine and stuff like that mm-hmm I'm sort of mixed on this one because, you know, uh, again, I didn't know like what this one in particular was about going in. So at first, when I saw that it, this was taking place on Kamabaka uh, Queendom, I, I just I, my immediate thought was, oh boy, uh, we're back here again, mm-hmm. huh? You know, because th- this is this is a particular like snapshot of One Piece that I think has left mine, yours, and a lot of bad taste in people's mouth just because of how Oda depicts uh, the the Okama characters and everything. It's just it's still not great. Um, which there's, there's like tastes of that here and there, because obviously with this being like, uh, well, inherently the characters of Akana that Oda drew in one piece are like problematic of like, very unflattering. He draws like, yeah, unflattering portrayals, like hairy, muscular people with like facial hair and stuff wearing feminine clothing to say like, Oh, is it, aren't these people weird? Which is really sucks in this chapter though i appreciate that it refrains the chase as more of a training thing like sanji doesn't want them to get in his way so much as he's actively transphobic and horrified of them as was the case in the actual manga yeah which i appreciated like the change characterization is changer like he does not like revile he does not hate these people like he does in the actual manga instead he's just like oh i don't want these guys to get in my way of like training to get these recipes and i don't want to like he constantly have to keep fighting them but then like once he gets like the first recipe he's like hey i want to make this will you let me make this for you guys and he like gets super excited and happy to like serve them and it's like yeah i I appreciate that like sanji it really emphasizes like sanji's excitement as a chef or sanji's uh passions for cooking Mm -hmm. over like his more uh unfortunate like sexist transphobic tendencies in the original manga and in the original characterization of how this training was presented in the actual manga. So yeah, I, I actually thought that this was, this ended up being kind of a charming chapter. Inherently, of course, the original designs Oda drew for the Okama are not the best, but I don't think they were portrayed as terribly as they were in the actual manga itself. And that was 
a relief considering, again, both One Piece's history with the how they perpetrate these characters and also Food Wars' own with that Don comma character yeah. uh, noir in the last arc of Food Wars. So, yeah. Yeah, I appreciated this. I mean, I should say this is nowhere near like my favorite chapter of Shokugeki no Sanji so far, but I still I, I appreciate that like uh, this chapter actually like uh, shines some light on at least some of like the training that any of the Straw Hats went through during the two year time yeah. skip because like that was that was one of my big things with like coming back into like after the time skip at first like after like a couple years in was like. Oh man, it would be cool if like we go actually got to like take a peek into like what any of the straw has training were like. And to my knowledge, I don't think we've still gotten anything like that 10 years after the time skips happened. Not that I can remember anyway. Um so th so this was this was a cool like kind of peek into that cuz like also a thing with Sanji that uh, this is another thing that I think has been kind of underutilized is the fact that like he's here because uh, he has to like train himself as a chef and learn all these like different specific recipes that are like supposed to revitalize you and new and uh, give you nutrition and everything. And like, I can't think of a time where like this is being utilized in like the main series at all. Yeah, no, like the, the actual rewards of the training of like learning the recipes he hasn't actually used in the series. But the utter element of the training of like him having to avoid the comments because they're like, you know, they attack him while he's still sleeping and then they guarding the kitchen and stuff. So he has to like rely on his like uh, instincts to make nutritious food in the wilderness. Like I thought that was a interesting reframing of like some of the skills he would have picked up during this training that I could see having a practical use, even though he hasn't used in a lot of the, what he has learned in terms of the actual recipes in the series itself. Mm-hmm. And again, I, I hate to sound like a broken record, but this is something that I bring up every time we cover a chapter of this is that like, you know, I both love and hate this sort of, I guess now miniseries is, you know, the the fact that like, I do like that uh, uh, Shun Saiki, you know, they, they do this thing with the with this series where like, oh, we get to actually revisit and explore like the actual interesting aspects of Sanji as a character. You know, the, like the, the the stuff that we don't really get with the main series because Oda, for some reason, really just wants to keep Sanji as like a joke character, basically just like the flanderization of like what he used to be, you know, and it's and so, oh, you know, something interesting. I just looked this up, but the dish Sanji made in the chapter actually was seen at the end of the Punk Hazard arc. Oh, huh. Okay, well, yeah, I I also yeah. forgot that Caroline is technically an anime original character, so this is okay, the first time she's huh. actually been drawn in the manga. That's interesting. I see again. The, uh, it's been a very long time since the time skip actually happened, so you'll have to forgive us for forgetting certain details. Yeah, no, I mean, I I just realized that I'm just looking it up <laughs> right now. But yeah, um, oh, that's actually really cool. I appreciate that. Okay, hey, some 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 deep cuts uh being made by uh, Shinsaiki there, you know. I, I appreciate that. Um, but still, that, that I think that just goes to show, like, th these are aspects of Sanji that, like, are just barely touched on at this point in the main series. And that's what makes these kind of frustrating, honestly. But, um, you know, I, I still appreciate them for what they are. And I appreciate these as a look into Sanji and, like, again, showing off the aspects of his character that I think... I personally think should be more focused on and I think are aspects of his character that I think so many people came to adore about Sanji when when we were first introduced to him, you know. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but yeah, again, I, I still think if I had to rank these uh, Shokugeki no Sanji chapters, I think I like this a bit more than the last one. Um, but I still, I still don't like it as much as chapter two. I still think that's the best one, personally. Yeah, chap- the making the dish for the the bride of that one guy who was like searching for that fish that was difficult to cut open, and Zoro landing Sanji's sword. Yeah, you know that one. It's the best in terms of all the character stuff and the emo- like nice emotion coming out of the payoff to that. So that was the sweetest chapter for sure. Mm-hmm. This one. At least was still like pretty okay though. I, I at least enjoyed this one like more than I thought I would. Yeah. But yeah, I think we can just kind of move on to our last one shot here, uh, with DC three from once again, uh Posca Denizu and Kayushi Rai. Uh Lum, if you want to talk a little bit about what that one's about. Yeah, so basically this is about a girl named Saho whose dad like made huge advancements in robotics. In, like, the 2020s, because, like, she meddled with his computer when he was a little kid, and that led him to have a breakthrough. So now he can, like, like working autonomous robots and stuff like that. So now she's, like, kind of hounded and harassed by a lot of different groups of people, like kidnappers and cultists and terrorists and paparazzi. She normally just evades all these people by herself, but her dad sends her, like, a new middle school boy bodyguard called DC Street to protect her. And so DC Street, like, is able to fight back against all the people pursuing her and is basically going to go to school with her to help keep her safe. And she resents that because DC Street, of course, is, like, stands out too much and it's very annoying. She just wants to be left alone. And she doesn't really have any friends because of a traumatic incident in her childhood where, like, friend, you know, got uh, blown up by a crazy terrorist guy who hated her fast robotics he jumped uh, to protect her and got hit with the blast instead of her so that's why like she doesn't want to have friends because she doesn't want to have anyone like lose her lives because of her and stuff like that and so that's why she wants to handle things on her own but she does get attacked by like assassin androids that were sent by her father's assistant who wants to usurp him and take over his company to sell his androids for military applications and of course it is revealed that DC3 is actually that childhood friend who got blown up when taking the blow for her in the past and he was remodeled by her father into a cyborg and he's stronger than a hundred normal androids. Oof. So he's able to fight back against the assassin androids sent by the assistant and then the assistant is taken out or humorously in reference to a gag earlier in the chapter by a salary man model and a janitor model like <laughs> SM35 and MTK48. And so the situation resolves and then Saho gets used to the idea of having DC Street tag around her because now she knows that he's his former friend. And then she has started to open up and make new friends at school. And so, yeah, now he's her bodyguard 24-7. Like, as, you know, they go to school and have all these crazy Avengers potentially as the chapter leaves off. And yeah, this definitely reads like it could work as the pilot for a long-running series. Oh, yeah. uh, More than their previous one-shots. So I wouldn't be surprised if it does get retooled into that one. It certainly feels like, oh, I could totally see that a future installments of this of like, yeah, there are all these different groups that could potentially go after Saho because of her connection to her dad and her dad being like this big pioneer and engineer 
you know, robotics and stuff like that. So, yeah, and of course, this has an easy bet being a battle series because of how strong DC Street is and how strong these other androids that could be sicked after them are. So, yeah, I think that this was a fairly predictable chapter in terms of the plot beats, but uh, I thought the action was pretty nice. I think the premise is a good foundation for a long-running story if they choose to make one. I think there was some good fun moments of comedy, like when DC Street is, like, kind of blowing up all the people who are, like, chasing after Saho near the beginning of the chapter. And then, of course, uh, again, that SM35 MTK48 reveal was a very funny gag. To see how that's how they, they get rid of the the assistant guy. It's like, oh, the, those androids that were like, I, you thought were a jerk or a joke were like actually real. And they actually helped. So I thought that was funny. So, yeah, overall, fairly enjoyable. And uh, I'm curious to see if they do choose to go in with this concept if their next like long running work. Yeah, I thought this was pretty good, too. I, I think you said it best. I, I would definitely love to see this as, like, a full series, possibly. Or at the very least, I, I, would, I would not say no. And, yeah, I, I just I just thought it was pretty good. I really liked that. Uh, I mean, first off, I really I liked uh, at the beginning where, like, the reporters are, like, asking, like, hey, how'd your daughter create these robots? Oh, by dumb luck and just playing on my laptop and boom. Like, I, I like how simple the explanation is. It's I just thought that was pretty funny um, that she she just kind of made these. She just made the robots like you don't need much more than that, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I also and I, I do agree with you that like the plot beats with everything about how like, oh, uh, especially with stuff like, oh, you know, the DC three. DC three is her childhood friend. Yeah. I mean, you could call that a mile away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's. It's fairly pretty predictable, but I, I think they were. I think those beats were still like executed well, and I also like that sort of like like the lesson or moral of the chapter, or I guess her her arc, whatever you want to call it, is Saho like learning to accept help from others again. I just thought that was like a pretty decent arc that she went through. Uh, I thought it made for a pretty good like emotional beat that I wasn't expecting, and I mean, also probably goes without saying that uh, Demizu's art is still great as always, you know. Uh, I, I will I will not say no to uh, more manga from them or more art in general, especially with that new uh, art book coming out from them that was just announced recently. That's gonna be really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I don't know if I have like a lot more else to say about this one other than I just thought it was good. And I'd, I'd like to see more if they choose to do more. Like, it's, it's like you said, like, I agreed that like, if you wanted to turn this into a full series, you could. At the very least, I think this has a better chance if you wanted to do like, a full series based on like whatever one shots they've done so far. Like I think this th- this this would work better as a long running series than like Saburo Kono. Yeah, um, as much as I like that one. Um, yeah, as a self contained chapter, I like Saburo Kono more. But like as a potential pilot for a new series, I think that DC three lends itself better to a longer running work. But it's also a fairly satisfying chapter in its own right. But you have a complete arc for the characters the scenario and whatnot mm-hmm. no uh pretty pretty good stuff and uh i'm, I'm sure this will probably also be included with uh with the short story collection that they're uh, coming out with here so it, it would it, it'll be cool for the to have this imprintive viz uh decides to put that out which again i'm i'm sure they will it's just a it's just a matter of when basically but yeah, I think that about covers all the one shots we have to talk about. But we're we're still not done with Shonen Jump because we've gotten a few new series, not just from Shonen Jump, but from like uh, I, I guess this first one we're going to talk about with Kubo won't let me be invisible. 
comes from, I think, Jump Plus? Yeah, it's a Jump Plus title. It's been running for a while now. Just got announced that Viz will be releasing the physicals starting next year. Mm. So, and hopefully once they start doing that, the backlog of chapters will get filled in. There's another one of those cases where Wiz picks up a series late into its run and it has like the first six chapters available and then like only chapters after the newest chapter available at the time they had picked it up. So there's a big 70 plus chapter gap, but it's a fairly easy series to kind of get into. I've kept up with the recent chapters, uh, despite not reading the chapters in the gap, fairly fine. The premise of the series is like another one of those type of series where we have kind of like this kind of loner guy who doesn't get noticed very much, who gets a lot of attention from, like, a very popular cute girl who, you know, teases him and is very friendly with him and tries to push him to be a little more outgoing and introduces her to him to her friend circle and stuff like that. That's basically the premise of the series with Kubo and Shiraishi. Like, Shiraishi is like a guy who doesn't get noticed. Like, people forget he's in the room a lot, but Shiraishi's always the person who notices him, always someone who reaches out to talk to him. And, yeah, like, he just kind of, like, deals with that, the fact that Shiraishi always pays attention to him. Like, even if other people think he's invisible, like, Kubo, like, as the title describes, won't let him be. And then, basically, the first few chapters kind of follow that setup as we're kind of toying with the idea that, oh, Kubo, the Shiraishi... Uh, in Kubo, like, have uh, something going on. Is Kubo, is Kubo interested in Shiraishi? And, you know, they're kind of getting, like, chummy, friendly with each other in that way. And then later chapters, like, it is guys to the point that, yeah, they're definitely, like, in a relationship, for sure. Okay. Like, their feelings for each other are, like, more clear to them and other people around them. Like, Kubo gets teased by, like, her sisters when they go to the beach to help out at, like, their aunts or whatnot. And you have all this, like, embarrassing situation where her Kubo loses, like, her bra. And Shiraishi has to, like, tie it for her because she can't do this. Like, her, her hands are too shaky and it's, like, a very embarrassing situation. And you, you get all those kind of rom-com hijinks. And then there's, like, potentially, like... Uh, Kubo's younger sister might also be interested in Shiraishi. Uh, we get more of a friend circle around the characters. Like, the first couple chapters of, like, after the, the big gap, like, 79 and 80, 81, those are focused on two of their friends, Tom and Sudo, who are, like, struggling in school and their relationship with each other. And so I think that it's interesting that they start to the form more of a friend group than characters who like also have stuff going on with them. So I think it's overall a cute, charming little rom-com series that I've been enjoying very well, even though you know I would really like to read the chapter gap to see like how the friend circle develops and how like the characters develop and understand that more clearly. But even without like, the context of missing chapters, I was able to enjoy the recent ones, just trying to kind of get where things are now with the characters and what's going on with them. And I like, uh, in general with the art, I like that, you know, Shiraishi is drawn with a very plain face oftentimes, like very simplified kind of kind of face that is meant to illustrate the idea that, oh, he has kind of this nobody invisible attitude because like his face isn't so distinctive, but like, you know, that also can change at times too, but I like that design of his, and uh, I think yeah, all the other character designs, like especially Hubo's, are quite cute as well. So yeah, charming rom com series. If you have uh, been missing one since, uh, uh, there's some stuff like this. I think Aikido Girls also fills a similar void, but that's more that's on Manga Plus. If you don't read it, the stuff on Manga Plus and just on Viz, you know, this fills the the void of like a cute 
slice of life uh, rom-com without any of the utter sh- supernatural shenanigans going on like in Witch Watch or something like that. Mm-hmm. I don't have a lot to say about this one. For context, I read the first six chapters of this, and I thought that was a decent enough, like, sample size. Um, I thought this was okay. Like, I thought it was cute. Like, this is just one of those things I just don't really have a lot of strong feelings on yet. Um, definitely not the kind of thing that, like, I would, like, binge a bunch of chapters of. Like, this is this is definitely one of those things where, like, if I just wanted to read something to pass the time... Uh, or, you know, I, I would even, I would even put this in the category of toilet reads where this is a nice thing to kind of read a chapter or two while, while I'm using the bathroom. And again, that's not to disparage like the quality of the series. I'm just saying it's, it's, it's a nice fluffy kind of like very readable thing. It's very sweet. I think the character relationships are very strong and uh, there are a lot of nice moments. Like in the recent chapters, I like the conversations that like Shiraishi has with Kubo's dad because Kubo's dad kind of has that understanding of like, oh, I understand like your relationship with my daughter. And it's cool. Like I think the characters are all very chill and like reasonable like the dynamics between them a lot like I, again i really even though i didn't have like a complete context building up to these chapters i like the chapters exploring like tom and pseudo like kind of struggling school and then their relationship with one another so yeah i think these this series is a very charming slice of life rom-com mm-hmm. i genuinely wonder who's better at being invisible shira ishii or uh, kuroko from kuroko's basketball well the problem with kuroko is that because he started being played in the games too much in the series people did start to notice him and know that he was there so that actually is a plot point in kuroko oh wow <laughs> but with shiraishi i mean the fact that he now has a friend circle, like at the point we're on a series, the idea that he's invisible and people forget about him is kind of dropped because like he has friends he interacts with and there are other people who like acknowledge him. So Kubo has succeeded in not letting him be invisible because like now more people are aware of him and stuff like that. So, you know, they both have that pro- problem. And like they're, they started out as people that other people would look past and not notice. But now because they have formed more of a social circle and just been around more people, now people are taking more note of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, again, I liked what I read of it. This is the kind of thing where, like, when more backlog chapters pop up, I'll probably read them. Uh, I do appreciate that when they go to the bookstore, they, they're checking out uh, the latest copies of Funter Funter. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, thought, I thought that was pretty cute. Uh, that gave me a good chuckle. Um, but yeah, I don't think I really have much else to say. I, ju- I just think it's cute. I haven't read a lot of these types of like, uh, I don't know what you would call it, like a boy in class gets bothered by a girl in class and they kind of have their like dynamic kind of goes from there. Like, I-, I guess this would be something I would put in the same category as like teasing master Takagi-san. Yeah, and, like, teasing Nagatoro. master, don't toy with me, Nagatoro. There was another one on Manga Plus that we talked about that. I haven't uh, followed that. Sekimi-san? No, that's not yeah, it. Yeah, Sekimi. Or was it? No, I think, yeah, Don't Bless Sekimi-san. It's a similar type. It's more akin to the Komi type of, like, he's helping an introverted girl, but, like, uh, I would still categorize it as a similar type of series. I guess, um, I'm, I don't know if you'd be able to answer this. I'm just kind of curious because I haven't, I, I'm aware of, like, this sort of sub-genre of manga that I think is kind of popular at this point. Or at least there's a lot of kinds of different titles like this. But um, h- how would you say it, like, compares to those other titles just in general? I think pretty solidly. 
I mean, I don't know how I would, like, rank them. I would say that it has the least problematic elements in how pushy or how much the character teases the other character. Because sometimes, well, Nagatoro especially early on, like, Nagatoro's bullying of Senpai is, goes really too extreme sometimes. It a lot, turns a lot of people off. Sometimes at the start. Yeah, that one always seemed pretty intense. Then TZ Masters Takagi-san also gets in a way like Takaki sometimes seem, is like maybe too annoying or something. Or, you know, I feel like you know, overall it's a charming series. But sometimes it seems like maybe she goes a little too far early on. The Kimi song's pretty friendly. So I, I would say this is pretty solid. I mean, I would have a better gauge, I think, if I'd read, read the missing chapters, maybe. That's and fair. If I yeah. like caught up on all of them to evaluate where they are now. I would say like I like all those series, though, overall. I would say, though, that, yeah, if you're worried about like content warnings, I think I don't think there are any with the series. It's pretty just fluffy and fun and cute. Like, uh, it's not like Nagatoro where you might need to get used to it or not might need to wait a little bit to understand the character a little more and appreciate that dynamic. And similar with Takaki, it's, that's another series where you might need to read a little bit to quite get, I mean, you could probably easily get, oh, Takaki's teasing the guy because she likes him, but, you know, she might need to read a little more to get to, like, the chapters that, like, really have a compelling thread between them. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. I was mostly asking because, like, those kinds of series, like, I'm not necessarily opposed to trying them sometime, but they, they've never really felt like my thing just because of, like, what I've heard about them from other people. Like, they just, especially Nagatoro just seems a little too intense and mean sometimes for my taste, maybe. Again, I, I haven't really, like, tried it myself, but just from what I've heard and from the little I've seen of, like, the anime and like how people talk about it it just doesn't really so far it just doesn't really feel like my kind of thing so i wasn't sure if this was going to be something like that but i i enjoyed like how fluffy this was at least like i this was this was a much easier read absolutely oh zaki chan is another example that's that's what it was yeah 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 i forgot about that too um but yeah no i guess it if uh, I, I can't really compare this to those others because i haven't read them but um uh, again, if you're looking for something nice and fluffy, I would be okay with recommending this. You know, it's just it's just very cute, and uh, I just don't really have a lot to say about it outside of that. But um, I think we can move on to the next series, uh, kind of available via Jump Plus and on Manga Plus and Viz with Don Dadan from Yuki Nobutatsu. Yeah, this is the big uh, Jump Plus hit of this year. Obviously, you know, a lot of hype going into it because it's from an assistant of Tatsuki Fuji Maki of Chainsaw Man. And uh, yeah, like it definitely shows in their art because their art is very dynamic. A lot of creative paneling and action sequences. Similarly, body revolved sense of humor. A lot of innuendos and plot points centered around the main male protagonist's private parts. So, yeah. The basic premise of this, it's like... Uh, the kind of... It's not a series similar to, like, oh, like, extrovertical, like, reaches out to introverted boy type thing. Well, it basically, like, this girl, Momoyaze, you know, she's not having great luck in her love life because she, she wants a guy like Ken Tadagura, but all her... Like, her first boyfriend was a real jerk. Then she notices this kid who's like a nerd who's kind of gets 
is being picked on and bullied a lot and she steps up to him and that makes him think that she's interested in the same things he's into which like he is a big dork for aliens and stuff like that but meanwhile she doesn't really believe in aliens but because her grandmother is like a spirit medium she's like she believes in like uh yokai and spirits and stuff like that you know they both mock each other's like and just saying oh ghosts aren't real oh you aliens aren't real and so they dare each other to go to like these haunting spots or hot spots for like you know aliens and ghosts respectively like uh yase goes to like this abandoned uh hospital building that is said to like you know their aliens appear there it's a big hotspot for ufos and then okarun goes to this tunnel that's said to be where like a turbo granny haunts it and then yeah like wouldn't you know it the boy who doesn't believe in ghosts ends up getting possessed by one and then the girl who didn't believe in aliens ends up getting abducted by aliens. And Ayase is abducted by aliens called the Serpoians, who, because they have mainly been reproducing by cloning, their evolution has been stagnating, so they want to breed and mate with other life forms. And so they have abducted Ayase for that reason. And just before she was about to be assaulted, uh, luckily, like, through her phone, uh, Okarun, uh, possessed by the Turbo Granny, comes in, they fight off the aliens, and then, like, as the fight continues, Ayase awakens her own Latin spiritual powers and is able to, like, fight back the aliens. But, unfortunately, like, Okarun being possessed by Turbo Granny, even though they're able to exercise, like, the main part of Turbo Granny out of him, he's, like, still possessed by her, and she still has this schlong, like, she, <laughs> she possesses him by taking away his dick, and so they have to basically train themselves in order to go and fight Turbo Granny, you know, thanks to Ayase's mom, a grandma being like a big spiritual medium. She's able to help them out a little bit. And then, yeah, they have this big showdown with Turbo Granny where they manage to separate her from like the kind of bound spirit she was latched onto and that increased her strength which was like this giant crab thing and they lure them out of the tunnel and so there's a big chase throughout the city and that eventually culminates in a fight on top of a train in which they lure Turbo Granny into an area where Ayase's grandma has set up a bunch of these seals that like incinerate Turbo Granny and it looks like they have defeated her it looks like things are all well and good but it turns out that wouldn't you know it, Okarun is missing his balls. <laughs> it turns out that before Turbo Granny like was completely eviscerated, she put some of her spirit back into Okarun and possessed him again, and doing that like took control of his balls, but then she lost his balls, and so now his balls are missing and had to find him. One of the balls was found by another classmate of theirs who previously Ayase uh, humiliated publicly because she was making fun of Okarun and that upset Ayase. So she had like a wash pan kind of fl- pop out of nowhere and hit her on the head while like saying that, oh, people like that are jerks and whatnot. So, but like this person, uh, Ayla, she is like, she thinks she has um preordained to like be a, like a hero of justice because she can see like the spiritual like Ayase spiritual powers. She saw her hands. She mistook them for devil wings, and 
she like thinks that after finding the golden ball, which like it's very funny, she's, like the golden ball like like pops on her head, like just out during the train incident, she was just walking by and just landed on her head, and she thinks that's like a sign of him, and like oh, it's a holy artifact that shows that I'm a chosen one and whatnot. So like they have to get it back from her, but she's being haunted by uh, acrobatic silky. Because, like, when she was a little kid, she mistook the acrobatic silky for a mother. And the acrobatic silky has this very tragic backstory of, like, when it was a living person. She lost her child. It, she, you know, she worked as a prostitute and she, to try and support her child. And, you know, she had a very loving home with her kid. But, like, debt collectors came and stole her child away from her. And then, like, you know, in her despair, she, like, ended up committing suicide and whatnot. So she ended up forgetting a lot of those memories. But, like, when Isla, as a kid, like, had pulled on her and told her and asked, mistook her for her mom that made the memories completely back and made her very protective of Isla and possessive of her. So they ended up fighting the acrobatic Silky and, you know, they ended up helping it like uh they end up defeating it and then it and because during the fight isla nearly dies like it sacrifices itself to basically revive isla and so then isla essentially has fused with the acrobatic situation she also has like spiritual powers similar to okarun where she like can transform and use power similar to the acrobatic silky so now at the point where they're in the story they've kind of come to the realization that the Reason why, you know, aliens haven't been able to invade Earth yet is that there are yokai all over the world. And the powers of the yokai are, like, what keep the aliens back from evading and, like, fight them back. So, they're kind of, there's more of a mystery uh, around that, and it seems. And, oh, you know, complementing all of this, like, stuff of, like, needing to find Okaroons that are ball and then trying to figure out the mystery behind these aliens and these Okai phenomenon stuff. It's like, you know, the budding romance between Okaroon and Ayazi and their feelings relations with each other, which are also consultated by Aya as, like, like a making it into a love triangle because she ends up developing feelings for Okaroon after he saves her during the acrobatic silky fight and stuff like that, so... Yeah, that's where the story is right now. And it's really, really fun to read. Read it all in single burst because, yeah, it's just so gripping in terms of the action. There's sort of like very funny sense of humor. I love that the Turbo Granny is stuck around as a Maneki Neko. And now she has an additional power of like, because she's a Maneki Neko now, she can cause lucky things to happen like as a given for the protagonist, like in Acrobeca Sigby fight. So that was pretty cool use of a mechanic. And yeah, like there are really cool like scenes and settings for the fight. Like the fight with Turbo Granny, like throughout the town, leading to the train is super cool. Oh yeah. The fight with Acrobeca Silky is really excellent, with a lot of dynamic stuff happening. And then the recent arc where they fight against the Sapoleons again and they've brought on the they brought along with them the Loch Ness monster and then kind of like uh mushroom top headed like boxer type of alien that is like compared to like a a shrimp mantis in terms of its punching speed like that was a great uh, sequence of a great fight in like kind of a drowned alternate like dimensional version of their school so that was really cool and uh the series managed to find a lot of sweet like compelling moments in the midst of like the crazy shenanigans of the fighting and the the 
you know, again, the Rabal comedy because, like, the Acrobat Kasilki's backstory is, like, very tragic and very sweet. And then the, like, shrimp alien, they fight a uh, mantis shrimp alien guy. Like, after they defeat him, like, they end up, like, helping him recover because he, like, collapses. And then he has, like, this big Camille Slaughter, like, reframes, like, something that happened during the arc where he was, like, he was saying, like, these names and he didn't really quite know what it means. But it turns out, like, he was saying the names of his, like, family to pump it up because he was, like, a contract worker who's like kid is like hospitalized and needs a lot of blood transfusions and in order to pay for them he like took on contract work for the Saporians but you know he's in such dire straits to like support his kid's finances and give him the blood transfusion he needs and it turns out that his blood is like milk just cow's milk so they just it's very humorously the the situation results with him literally adopting a cow <laughs> to take back to his own family to just provide his kid with those blood transfusions, which is like the milk of the cat. It's just very, very funny reframing of like alien mythologies and uh, yokai mythologies into this uh, narrative and playing with them in really fun ways. So yeah, Don Don is awesome. There's not any hype, but like everyone's been talking about it and how great it is. And uh, definitely it is an awesome read so far. Yeah, I can see why like this blew up over in Japan, uh, and I can see why they'd want to bring this over. Um, I mean, I, I'm really enjoying it so far. Um, unfortunately, I'm not caught up just yet. I, I had to stop around the point where they seemingly took out Turbo Granny uh, after their big uh, kind of fight throughout the city or whatever. But uh, just just hearing you talk about what happens after really makes me want to like catch up to this soon. Uh, and I'm definitely going to do that at some point because, man, I really need to read more of this. Uh, I mean, ju- just kind of speaking about it broadly, I really like the idea of a series that kind of like meshes together elements and aspects of sci-fi and the supernatural. Yeah, and pits them against each other. It's a, it's a fun concept, aliens versus yokai. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's done really well here so far. And um I, I really I really like the uh the, the like the relationship between Ayase and Okarun and how that's like developed so far. And it's very cute that the infatuation from Ayase's part starts when she like Okarun says uh Kentata Kuroline and then she asks him his name and his name as turns out coincidentally is also Tentakakura. <laughs> and so she doesn't want him to ever say his name in front of her because like, you know, it just throws her too much for a loop. But yeah, they clearly are budding into feelings for each other. With uh, other love rivals also getting in the way, like with Ira, and then now there's a new guy who is like a childhood friend of Ayase's who was just introduced. Mm, okay. Um, yeah, I mean, again, I, I don't have like a lot to say about this just other than like, it's really good. And I'm not surprised that th- this is being done by somebody who used to work under Fujimoto. Like, I, I think this is just kind of par for the course for anyone who's worked under him you know like if you if you like chainsaw man i think this will be like uh you know i think this will be a good uh other series for fans of chainsaw man to latch on to at least until part two comes out but uh but no this is this is super good like i'm uh, and maybe just because like i forget if the first volume is out in japan or not i would not be surprised if they if this got picked up for like a physical release over here i think i think that's possible oh it absolutely will be once the volumes start coming out in print i'm, I'm sure that we'll get an announcement sometime next year for print releases mm-hmm. but yeah it's super good and you should you should read it i'm 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 kind of upset with myself that i didn't like read more of it but in, in my defense we had a lot to kind of read and talk about for the show so that's the only that literally that is the only reason i didn't read more 
Um, otherwise, I would have just kept going, honestly. Um, but yeah, I, I like I, I think out of everything we're talking about, I guess out of everything we're going to talk about with the Simul Pups in particular, I think th- this is the one I'm kind of the most eager to like read more of, like right right away. Um, so yeah, it's it's good. Like th- this gets a full full two thumbs up from me. Uh, just, just go go read this. Uh, it's very good. Yep, this gets two balls up for me. <laughs> also, also, um, I I guess I'm not surprised that like one they rated this M for mature and two why it's not on the it's not on the viz up. Yeah, I mean the entire premise is predicated on him getting back his genitalia. <laughs> First his dick and now his balls. He still only has one ball. They still have to get back the other one. He there's also a moment I vividly remember early on where like. He just bites Turbo Granny's tit. Yeah, it's great because like Turbo Granny, like just have, you know, let me gobble your song. I'll let you suck on my teeth. And so he actually does. He actually bites her. And that actually throws her aback. Oh which is man, great. the 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 humor of this series is like very delightfully dirty. Like I really, mm-hmm. I really appreciate it. It's it's very fun. Oh man, um, yeah, I'm I'm really looking forward to reading more of this and catching up soon. But. Uh, I guess we can kind of move on to, um, the, I guess, the newest Shonen Jump, actual weekly Shonen Jump series we have to talk about with, uh, and I've heard this is how it's pronounced, with PP, 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 uh, from Mapolo 3. A group of setuplets are born to, like, this famous pianist. Six of them are very talented. One was a not. The dad was a real jerk. The dad was a famous pianist. And he rejected the child who was not talented. And so his mom and his dad, they got divorced. And so uh, the protagonist's name is Lucky. Like, Lucky and his mom, like, they, they moved away from his dad and his other siblings. His other siblings ended up being really big shot pianists. He's not really allowed to play the piano. Now he lives with his, like, cousins and stuff because his mom has, like, a, an illness and is hospitalized. And for a long time, it's kind of been kind of like a coma state or just has not been able to really communicate with him. But he always goes to her bedside and plays piano for her. And then, you know, listening to him, like, apologize to her and talk about how much he, he wants to play again. Like, it makes her decide to stop taking the medication down, she, even though she, it puts her in terrible pain to just tell him to follow his dreams. And so he does decide ultimately then to go and pursue playing piano again. Like, even though he's not great, even though he's considered mediocre, like, that's what he loves doing. And so he encourages to follow his dream. And so he does do that. And like at the big entrance exam for the really popular music school that he wants to apply to, he's mostly mediocre in all the pieces he plays, but he plays Twinkle Twinkle Little Star which is really excellent because when he plays Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, it like kind of is imbued with all these feelings and memories of him playing with his siblings when he's younger. And in this series, like when people can play music like really well, it causes like observers and listeners to be able to see visions of like what they are feeling or what they're experiencing. And so it gives them like visions of a time and place. And that happens to one of the proctors of exam, Dada, where he witnesses like Lucky play and he like can see him in the past playing with his siblings and he can see like a cup in front of him. And so that makes Dada interested in Lucky and makes him, you know, stick out for him in getting him accepted into the music school. And so Lucky gets in, but of course he's still, you know, not quite there in terms of his skills. So he's struggling at the start. 
And he overhears from the hospital staff that his mom, by not taking her medications or whatever, or maybe even just unrelated that, she just only has like a year to live. And so that kind of puts an impetus in him and makes him like desperate to like improve really fast so he, he can become really good and he can like play piano like professionally before his mom dies with his siblings again so he asks Dada to take him on as an apprentice but Dada only takes on like one apprentice at a time and there's another candidate Akofurasu who's like ahead of the class at the music school they, he, she also attended the same middle school as Lucky and he had encountered her before there when she had been playing a piece and then he was able to see like a vision of steps and stuff like that so he's familiar with her but you know Fursu has kind of resentment to the Odagami family because her mom was a you know professional pianist before but because she lost a bunch of music competitions to Odagami's dad you know she ended up losing a lot of her jobs and standing and so she's resentful of that and so that's why she wants to learn from Dada to become a great pianist and like defeat the Odagamis. And so that's why they're rivals. But yeah, like basically Odagami and uh, Furusu compete with each other uh, for the position of his apprentice. But, you know, Dada, of course, always intended to take them both on as apprentices. So that situation resolves as you'd expect. But then Dada challenges Odagami, hey, you should your target should be to challenge one of your siblings who's now back in Japan, Reijiro. And that's kind of where the story is right now. Like, he's met up with his brother, Reijiro. He's told him that, you know, he wants to become a pianist, and that causes a rift between him because, like, you know, the other siblings are considered genius, he's mediocre, and he doesn't think that normal people can become pianists. And so that's uh, sort of a conflict between him and one of his brothers, which is where the story is at now. And yeah, I, I think the story is pretty easy to follow. I know a lot of people are criticizing the art. I think the style is maybe a little strange. It takes a while you're used to. Like Lucky's hair is like all over the place. Uh, designs are really angular and stuff. But I do like a lot of what it's going for. This idea that even if you're not born with talent, even if you're not considered a genius or naturally good at something, that even if it's something you really enjoy doing, it's a thing that you can try to improve at and get better at and still pursue and still get good at and do really well at. And I think that that's what it's going for. That's kind of the message that his mom is telling him. And I think that's like a kind of a sweet angle and a good message to start off with. I appreciate the second chapter introduces a drive and sense of urgency in him wanting to be able to play alongside his siblings within a year. And the additional conflict of, you know, his siblings not believing Lucky can ever get good enough to play alongside them or play professionally at all is also a good barrier and good challenge for him in order to, you know, push him to get good to a level in which they can acknowledge him. And uh, I like the first character. I think that's a good, like, rival slash uh, companion to play off Lucky. And I'm curious to see how the relationship goes. So, yeah, I'm enjoying this just fine. I know that this has had kind of a mixed reception. Uh, I guess I only know a few people who really like it, like Maxie, that other people I've heard apparently seem to really dislike it. But, you know, honestly... With the way it visualizes kind of the out-of-body experiences of, like, Lucky playing music and not transporting people to different places time. Uh, in general, people, like, being transported to different places time from hearing good music and having these kind of, like, surreal 
uh, experiences that sort of reminds me of Akaji's approach to acting, which like onlookers could see like things that weren't there or really get invested in like just these simple performances just because of how visceral they were. And I like that angle to it. So maybe the art could lose a little more polish. There are some weird proportions and designs to it. But I think the overall storytelling, like I know and get where it's coming from. And I think I appreciate its angle towards it. I will say it starts off with kind of a a weird note of like saying, having your character say, oh, I want to poo. It's like, <laughs> why, why would you introduce this to your protagonist that way when like this, there's not really a follow up. Like Lucky isn't very dirty minded. Like that's not like a running gag. So it's a very strange way to open up and introduce us to your character. But overall, I appreciate the series uh, just fine. I'm interested to see where it goes. Well, I found it relatable because I also poo. No, but um, see, I, I, I think my brain broke earlier just because, like, and I don't, I don't know how to say this without like coming off hyperbolic, but like, I don't know. It's just I, I'm we're four chapters in at the time of this recording, and I just, I don't think it's bad, but I, I genuinely don't know like what to think about it so far. Like, I, I do, I do think it has like certain messages and themes that like I like that it's going for like 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 this idea that like oh you know uh lucky himself is uh I guess I don't know what you would call it like sort of the black sheep of the family obviously because uh, you know he he wasn't born talented like the others yeah like his piano playing is like I guess objectively worse than like his siblings or whatever like he's not as talented as his siblings but like you know th- there's so- there's sort of a value in like I guess, quote unquote, being like uh, mediocre or whatnot. I think I think the idea is that like because like he's so bad at piano, apparently that like he has more room to grow. Yeah, it's a different way of looking at someone who isn't already starting off like on the best foot in terms of like their polish. Like it's because it's like, yeah, like he might not be very good right now. But yeah, that leaves a lot of opportunity for him to get a lot better yeah and you can see the slick glimmers of potential in there and what he is good at with his playing jingle jingle little star so that was that that's what data sees it and that's why i think he takes an interest in it mm-hmm. yeah so it, it's not really so much the story that gets me because like you said i, I think it's like uh, straightforward enough to follow like it's not complicated or anything i i i think i think the the art kind of throws me off because it's just not something i'm really used to and i'm i'm sure that's probably the case with a lot of people reading this right now I have to be honest, and I don't, I don't want to like disparage it by saying this, but I, I just, I don't see this lasting. Like, I feel, yeah. I feel like a lot of people are, uh, if they haven't already, like they're going to be really turned off by this. Unfortunately, yeah, it doesn't strike me as the kind of series that lasts usually, but you never know. We will see. But considering how competitive Jump is right now, and also like some of the favoritism it seems Jump editorial has towards certain types of series or others, I don't know if this all last uh but we'll see i mean all i i mean just to write down and see what it does with the time it has in terms of the story it tells so uh, yeah you know it has my interest i appreciate what it's going for i think it has executed uh, some of it a little clumsily but i don't think it deserves nearly as much of the vitriol or apathy that i've seen other people throw of it which uh certainly perplexes me no yeah i don't think it's bad by any means i just think it's just not something that people are used to you know like mm-hmm. it's 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 a very weird looking series and i could see like why people would be turned off by it hell i 
Well, I don't know if I can. I don't know if I could say I'm turned off by it because, like, I don't know. Like, even if I don't think it's like the best thing ever necessarily or whatever, like, I still think it's. I I can't. I kind of want to keep up with it. Like, I, I have to. So I don't know if this really says. I don't know what this says about me, but um, usually when we when we do these simul pub like catch up roundups, whatever you want to call them, and when we get to these like new Shonen Jump series, like. I, I usually waited till like closer to when we record these podcasts to kind of like check them out so they're a little fresher in my mind. Um, I think this is one of the only new jump series we've covered on the show so far where like I, I like after kind of like hearing what other people thought about it, especially from Maxi, like I, I, I had to check it out right away. Like I checked it out like the day it came out because I was just like so curious about it. And I don't, I don't know. Uh, I don't know what that says about that, like this series compared to like the other jump stars we've covered on the show. But like, it just has this weird charm to it that like that like no other series in Jump has r- right now. Like, it's very unlike anything I've read from Jump in a long time. Like, it's just j- just the feel of it and like what it's going for. Like, it's it's hard for me not to be invested in like how it's gonna fare. I don't know. There's just something about it that really compels me to keep going until I keep up with it. Like I'm not, I'm not turned off enough by it to drop it. Like I think I actually like want to actively keep up with it. It's this. This is not a feeling I've had with a jump series in a while. You know. Hmm. I don't know. It's just. Uh, I just. I just don't really know what to say about it so far, other than it, it's just interesting. Like it's just, it's the kind of interesting that like. Only a few, like a few select uh, Shonen Jump titles have like uh, kind of captured for me. You know, it's 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 really hard to put how I feel about this in words right now. Yeah, it dares to be different. I feel like it's a typicalness is. I brought up comparison before, but it does it did remind me of Octosh and like how it is executed some things. Except with Octosh, of course, it starts from the foundation of like the character was really really good and this is starting from the imagination of oh this character is not that good except for one specific thing right now and then needs to grow to improve but yeah we'll see like of the aesthetic i mean the art here is not nearly as strong as uzazaki's uh, with that series so you know we'll see if uh, people can jive with the aesthetic and if uh, audiences can resonate with the message i would have also bet that it probably will not last but i do appreciate that it is a different type of approach to a series like this i'm gonna say if this if this surpasses three volumes i would be surprised um but yeah i don't know um i yeah i I think it's really gonna come down to like how many people jive with the art because like again i don't think the art's bad in fact i actually think it's like the most interesting thing about the series um down to details like um, I, I really like the detail, weirdly, of, like, certain, like, sound effects and, like, speech bubbles have, like, drop shadows under them and stuff. Like, I don't know, so, something something about that, uh, about those details in particular, I don't know, just kind of interest me. It gives this series, like, its own identity and, like, it's, again, like, it's it's really unlike anything I've read in a long time and... I don't know, like, it's just interesting, and I think as long, like, even, even if the series ends up, like, you know, not succeeding, or it, it or it ends up kind of, like, fumbling its way out the door, or whatever, like, uh, I, I think that's the reason why I love covering, like, cancelled stuff in particular on the podcast, is I, I always find those series really interesting, because they're, they're just so interesting to read and interesting to talk about, and, yeah, I don't know, I'm, I, I'm definitely very mixed, but, 
it does have this weird kind of charm to it that does make me want to keep reading it. So I think that's more than I could say for other like stuff that ended up getting canceled in the past anyway, you know. But I think that's about it for like stuff that's on the Shonen Jump app specifically. And now I guess we can get on to uh, something that's so far only on the Manga Plus app. Maybe one day we'll see it on Shonen Jump. Maybe Viz will pick it up. You never know. And I, I guess this is also a series that um, originally I think was only available in Spanish, but it recently got picked up for an English release. And I think it's like catching up, I think, in terms of its release. But uh, yeah, I think we can talk about uh, Diamond in the Rough from now, Sasaki. Uh, and yeah, this this one's I think this one's pretty interesting so far. Um, so this series is about, basically, uh, I guess it centers around a character named, uh, I don't know if it's Akeboshi or Akaboshi. Well, Akaboshi, yeah, he is the ore craftsman. Yeah. And he comes to this village, Hagi Village, which is underground. There are underground villages uh, in the series, and some people spend all their lives there, like our protagonist, Kai. And, like, Akaboshi just comes down there to, like, like show off rocks and, you know, do some excavation stuff. But then Kai over here is that, oh, like, uh, an orc craftsman has come. And, like, he thinks he might be, like, a guy with, like, a streamlined ruby red earring. So he, like, tricks and traps him and then frees him after realizing he's not the guy. And they have, like, this conversation where he, like, reveals, like, there was a guy who, like, uh, attacked him and his family three years ago and petrified his left foot and petrified his family. And then as the chapter progresses, like, the relationship between Kai and Akaboshi then starts, like, Kai is not very interested in rocks and in jewels and stuff, but then Akaboshi shows him a collection of different uh, assortments that he has picked up, and he talks to Kai about them and, like, shows them, hey, a lot of these are really cool and really interesting, and so they kind of form a rapport. But then the next day, the lord of the village comes and approaches Akaboshi and tells him, like, oh, hey, we have found, like, this interesting red ruby jewel, a red diamond. And, like, that excites him, and he tells Kai about it, but then Kai gets horrified and angry at him and think, and then runs away. And then he follows Kai back to his home underground and realizes that, oh, like, the red diamond is growing out of Kai's leg. And actually, like, all of Kai's petrified family... There are like jewels of different types growing out of them and on them. And the village, like after it got ransacked by the man with the three line jewel earling a few years ago, like Sabia came in and took over as the lord of the village. Like he was originally just a gem merchant, but then he took, o- took it over. And the village like traded him and like sold him the family, like just to support themselves basically. And then. Yeah, so he's been, like, kind of mining them, essentially, for jewels. Like, he let Kai just run free because he thought that would just help the jewel grow more naturally. And he's going to try and sell it to Akaboshi. But then, of course, like, he starts beating up on Kai because Kai, like, like fighting back against Sabia. And then that caused Kai's powers to awaken, which at first can turn stones into diamonds. But then, like, if he overheats it, it'll turn him into sand. And, like, Akaboshi gets him to calm down, and then they, like, fight back against Sabia, and Akaboshi reveals, like, his powers, like, he can use, like, a red ruby sword that, like, can catch on fire and stuff, and then Kai is able to, like, fight with his, like, diamond powers, 
Like, he's able to turn Akaboshi's blade into diamond. And so then, like, Akaboshi, like, invites Kai to, like, go... Or, like, Kai asks him, like, to become his apprentice. And Akaboshi agrees to, like, uh, take him on as apprentice. And so then they, you know, Kai is able to leave to the surface. And then they go back to the village where the bureau of the Orchestrasman is. And very suddenly, the man with the three-line Julie Erlings, like, starts attacking them. And now they're fighting him. So the series kind of escalated almost immediately right there. But, uh, yeah, it basically, it seems like the series has this foundation of, like, people, like, fight with powers based on different stones and jewels. Like, the man with his three-line jewelryling, like, he fights with Sibonite, which is, like, a poisonous rock that, like, you know, it can burn you if you touch it. It releases, like, a poisonous gas if, like, you break it apart and stuff like that. So it's very dangerous to fight against, and he's able to use it in very threatening ways. And then, of course, like, Kai has his diamond powers, and Akaboshi has, like, his ruby powers. So, kind of interesting in that way. And then there's also, like, powers that I don't quite think are related to jewels. Because, like, one of the people he meets in the town, like, Ko, who is, like, someone who wanted to be Akaboshi's apprentice, but was turned down and works for the audit bureau now. Like, she can, like, summon, like, giant beasts, like a giant tiger. So, there are other types of powers in the series, too. But, yeah, it seems like primarily this will be, like, a battle manga with people who draw powers and energies from like different types of stones and uh yeah i think it's a good foundation for a battle manga so far with interesting kind of world building to it i think it's interesting how it's escalated by finding the guy who attacked kai's family like pretty much immediately but there seems to be more mustang there because like he seems to recognize Akaboshi. Akaboshi seems to recognize him so there might be more of a evil organization thing going around and uh, I think the art's pretty strong. And as uh, mentioned earlier, like there is a really great use of a color page in the second chapter. Oh and yeah, Kai goes on the surface the first time, and like he's able to see the sky, and just it's a beautifully rendered illustration of like the entrance that they have come out of, and they're like seeing like the head of like this gargoyle like uh, rock monster that it, you know has like this verdant like path and trees growing on it. It's like a very beautiful illustration with like the sea, the sky, clouds, and like this dragon head thing so yeah i i think that was a really great use of a color page and uh yeah it's an interesting start i think the designs are pretty good i think the characters are pretty likable i like the dynamic between akaboshi and kai so far you know interestingly i feel like with his kind of more chinese dress and pigtails like he kai remind looks and resembles a lot like ranma to me yeah personality is very different but like i they feel like, huh, this guy's like a brown-haired Rama, but in terms of appearance. But yeah, like, uh, obviously very different kind of character and premise. But yeah, it's uh, been interesting to read so far. I'm curious to see where it's going, because it did escalate much quicker than I thought it would in terms of finding that guy and getting to, like, this big high-stakes fight pretty immediately. Yeah, um, the, the, the art for the series is really interesting. And yeah, I like you said, I, I, met, I kind of alluded to earlier that that great two-page color spread of them uh, walking out from underground and onto the island, basically. I, I'm i looking at it right now on Manga Plus. I need this framed. Like, I would, I would love to own, <laughs> I would love to own this physically somehow. It, it just, it just looks amazing. Again, I love it when digital manga makes use of color pages like this to really insinuate a really, uh, just a great moment. But yeah, yeah, the, the, the art's really interesting to me because I, you know, like you said, Kai very much looks like 
the Rama from Rama Half, and like the the art. This series almost kind of feels like something that I think easily could have run in like in like the early two thousands. Like this, yeah. Like this, this feels very like of that time to me somehow. Except I do appreciate like how much it's really escalating. Like uh, I I appreciate the pace the story is going, and I do appreciate that like it, it seems like they have found the guy who turned Kai's Paris to stone basically. But uh, yeah, again, I don't know how much I have to say so far, just because we are kind of like in the middle of like a big conflict right now. And I'm really interested in seeing like how that goes. Um, I, I, th- I think this is just really solid so far. Uh, like you said, I really like the relationship between Kai and uh, Akaboshi so far, especially in Kai's case, where like in his village, he was mostly seen as like merchandise, basically, and not even like as a human being, which is really really depressing and you know it's nice to have someone like akaboshi come in to like really kind of validate his existence and like you know tell him like hey like you're worth so much more than what they think of you or whatever like you have dreams and everything Mm -hmm. too and just yeah uh, i i think i think the emotional core of that relationship is really well done so far Uh, the only thing that i think kind of confused me and maybe this is just totally a me thing but like Chapter two is a lot of like kind of trying to explain how the powers work. And I think I kind of understand, but I don't know if I like fully understand how they work. Honestly, Um, I thought I thought some of that was a little confusing. I might have to like reread through some of that again. But I I think that's the only thing that kind of like confused me a little bit. But also, I I don't know, like how important that is. Like I they, they work. They work just fine. Yeah, they're based on these elements and properties of the stone. Like, they draw energy from these stones that they can transmute them and stuff like that. Kind of similar to alchemy and FMA. Or, like, specifically with stones. Okay, that that's... I, I, I think I think that's kind of how I understood it. I wasn't... if Like you said, I wasn't sure if it was exactly like, oh, the stones are drawing out, like, people's inner power, or if it was, like, uh, Akaboshi, like, already has powers and he's able to, like, amplify them, like, through the stones or whatever. I just I just wasn't really sure about the nitty-gritty of that. But, yeah, I mean, overall, I just... I, I'm really liking it so far. I think, uh, along with Don to Don, like, uh, this is another series out of everything we're talking about where I... Uh, I mean, I, I'm caught up on it, obviously, but, like, I, I definitely want to, like, keep reading this as chapters come out. Like, I'm I'm pretty hooked into this one. I want I want to keep reading this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think this is another one I'm I'm fully okay with like recommending people to read. Uh, and again, like I said, right now it's only on Manga Plus. I guess compared to like all the other like Manga Plus exclusive stuff, um, I, I thought the like translation and lettering for this one was actually pretty okay. I didn't really have any moments where I thought where I was like confused about. Well, I, I guess aside from like the power explanations, I you know uh, th- there were very few times where i was like down on the translation and how it was lettered and everything i don't know it was it, it was okay like I-, I know obviously both manga plus and viz like have their own separate teams and i i do think viz usually like their teams do a way better job of you know localizing their stuff but you know uh, th- th- this one at the very least i thought was done okay it- it's it's better than like some of the other stuff on manga plus i guess uh, the one that kind of comes to mind is also one that like I dropped kind of because of the way it was like localized was it, it was uh, excuse me, please. Dent- That's not the title of the series. The the excuse me, dentist. It's touching me. I like yeah, yeah, that yeah. series a lot. I know you were bothered by localization, but you know, I still keep up with it. I enjoy reading it. But I would agree that this series I'm in the rough. Uh, you know, it felt 
for it read fairly naturally. I didn't really have any issues with any of the grammar syntax in this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I was kind of just paying attention to that because we have gotten a lot of like like quotes from like people over at Shueisha who are like looking into like using cheaper beans to like translate their stuff and mm. that that, that kind of bothers me a little bit yeah so yeah that, that was just kind of on my mind when I was reading this so I, I just thought that was worth mentioning that the the actual localization and like the way it reads I didn't bother me too much which I thought was also good but yeah definitely go read this one it's on manga plus and you should go read it it's pretty good but um, I think that's about it for, especially for like all the Shueisha stuff. Uh, and I guess we can get into some of our stragglers here, with, starting with Yen Press, uh, with Reborn as a vending machine. Uh, if you just want to talk a little bit about the premise of that one, it's a fairly simple premise, but it's a fun take on the Isekai Reborn in another world type genre. Where this guy, we don't even know his original name as a human, but he was, he really loved vending machines. Like, he thinks they're beautiful and functional, like, even if they are obviously selling overpriced products, like, he loves finding out what new products are being sold, when new machines, he's gotta buy everything new and interesting. One day, though, of course, wouldn't you know a truck coon comes crashing down <laughs> besides some of his favorite vending machines, and it causes it to, like, collapse off the wall and, like, start to plummet down, and he's like, oh no, if it falls at that speed, it's gonna break, and so he jumps under it to try and save it, but of course, <laughs> all that ends up he ends up doing he's getting crushed by it and then he gets reborn in another world wouldn't you know it as a winning machine but he's like a special winning machine in which like he can like with his internal systems switch out different products uh and set the price for them and so you know he's a very cool customizable winning machine but unfortunately, he has like a drawback because, you know, in order to operate, he consumes one point per hour. And so he needs people to buy products in order to replenish his points because if he runs out of points. Essentially, he'll die and he can use points to like defend himself from like attacking monsters and stuff. Like he can set up a force field to, you know, stop like a monster from attacking him. But if he does that, that'll deplete his points really heavily. So he needs people to buy products in order to replenish his points and keep himself alive, basically. And he ends up coming across this girl, Lammies, who's like a hunter and like she like is fighting off against like these like frog like creatures who are like attacking and stuff and she fends them off and then... After that, like, she ends up taking an interest in him and figures out that she can pay money to get products from him. And she recognizes that he has, like, sentience, even though he's a waiting machine. Like, Biden can realize that, oh, Goo can communicate through these simple commands. Because he can't, like, talk, like, naturally. He can only say, like, a kind of regular kind of messages that you would expect a vending machine to be able to, like, say, like, welcome and thank you, please come again, and stuff like that. So they're able to though, set up, like, a communication system so that, you know, they she can say something for yes and then something for no and stuff like that. And then Lammy's is super strong, so... You know, she's able to take him back to her village in which, like, a lot of people start to get interested in him and his products. And so he gets a lot of business as they're, like, saving up money to go and meet a friend's of Lammy's, Kogumi, who is, like, a great, like, uh, magician who can maybe help figure out, like, how to help uh, Boxo as he, as Lammy's calls him in his vending machine arm, like, communicate with people better and figure him out. 
So that's kind of where we are now, just two chapters in, is that, you know, he's kind of ingratiated himself in the village and, like, a lot of people are very friendly with him and, like, love his products and stuff like that. And now uh, they've met, like, an interesting bear guy at the <laughs> end of the second chapter. And what's his, his deal? I guess we're going to find out in the next one. But, yeah, I've heard about this one for a while. Like, the light novel's been out for a while, but it's a lot of fun it's a very fun transfer story. I like how they play with the mechanics of winning machines and how it would operate in kind of this fantasy isekai type setting and how people in who have no experience with what a winning machine is interact with it and think it's like so interesting and great and love all these products like the warm udon and whatnot is just and potato chips and sports drinks and all that stuff. So it's like really, really funny, uh, fun stuff. So yeah, it's pretty charming. And if you enjoy, like, kind of more comedic takes on the Isekai reincarnated in other world stories, I think this is a fun one so far. Yeah, um, this might be silly to admit, but I, I think this might be my actual first modern Isekai thing I've read, because I, I, re I really don't, like, not, not that I, like, dislike Isekai per se, it's just, I just don't normally, like, read a lot of stuff like this, so uh, I think I joked about this on Twitter, that of course, like... <laughs> Of course, this would be like my first like modern isekai story about a guy who I just I just love specifically how he's not run over by the truck, but he dies from like trying to save the vending machine. Yeah, <laughs> actually got crushed on the by the vending machine because he's like, oh no, it's gonna break if it falls, and then he just <laughs> falls on top of him. And like he sacrifices his life for a vending machine. It's just great. Oh, I was I was not expecting. I was not expecting the story to start off like that. Uh, that that was I thought that was a great like comedic hook and um yeah, I don't know. So far I'm really liking it. I just really like how uh I don't know, like this this just makes me this makes me wish like cuz I know vending machines especially over in Japan like are are you know like uh, I I'm assuming like stuff like the canned udon and like the warm soups and stuff like I Maybe we do have vending machines like that over in the U.S. and I just haven't come across them. But like, I I wish I had more vending machines like this. I I would probably spend way more money on them, honestly. Yeah, I know Japanese vending machine culture is like way, has like way more variety to it, and it's pretty interesting. It's not just the junk food kind of stuff. Like it has like really interesting kind of like stuff like the heated type food and yeah, you know, all these other interesting products. Mm hmm. Um, another little moment I liked in uh, chapter two is when uh, Lemmy's takes the vending machine like to the guards. And um, one of them is just like kind of thinking about like buying something or whatever. And then he he sees what's inside him. And he's kind of like thinking like, oh, should I do it? And then he's like, no, I'll do it. And I just I just love how like how intensely hard he presses the buttons or whatever. I don't know. I, you know, I don't know if I've ever had Udon, but like... It's technically, it's Odin, actually. I mean, we've, we've kind of been mispronouncing it, but yeah, he serves Odin in the... My mistake, yeah. Um, I don't know, like, like what canned stuff is like in Japan, but like, I don't know if, if it's as good as it seems. Like, I, I wouldn't mind trying it. It looks it, like all, all the food, especially for like vending machine food, looks pretty good, honestly. I would, I would try at least most of the stuff here. Yeah, I've heard a lot of the convenience food of Japan is generally of higher quality than the stuff you can get here, like even like an instant ramen and stuff. Mm, yeah, I I kind of figured it was like a higher quality. You know, it's 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 better than say like I don't know off the top of my head, like having like a can of like Chef Boyardee or like that kind of like quality <laughs> of pasta or something. You know, um, stuff that's probably really not good for you, but you eat anyway because it's cheap. 
Yeah, I mean, so far, this is good. Like, I, you know, normally I'm a little hesitant on, like, um, because uh, I don't know if we've mentioned, but, like, I know this is available on Comixology. Um, I've been buying chapters via Bookwalker. And, I mean, nor- normally I'm a little hesitant on, like, actually purchasing Simulpub chapters just because it's like, well, if I'm going to purchase Simulpub chapters, like, I don't know why, I, like, f- for me, I'd rather just wait for volumes to come out because it's a little cheaper. Yeah. I mean, for me, especially because it's a Yen Press series, I know I can just get a review copy when the physical release comes out. So I'll probably just wait for that from now. But I am interested in reading more. Yeah, see, that's the thing. Like, I'm usually against, like, actually purchasing Simulpub chapters for that reason. But, like, I wouldn't mind, like, keeping up with this one. Like, it's a, I think it's a, this is a monthly series, I think. Um, mm-hmm. Honestly, like... Um, I don't I don't mind buying chapters like a monthly thing like what is it like le- less than two bucks per chapter or whatever usually I think paying that monthly isn't a bad idea I, I would much rather pay that monthly than pay it like weekly you know I mean I guess weekly chapters are usually cheaper but still it does add up over the month um, so I don't know like I, I would I would not be opposed to like keeping up with this month to month actually um, and hey you know worst case scenario if if I don't end up keeping up with it for whatever reason, like, it's like you said, like, I'm sure they'll put out uh, actual collected volumes of this eventually. So I can always just buy those two if they happen to come up before I read the actual Simulpub chapters. So either way, I, I would actually like to keep up with this one. It's 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 very nice, very cute. It's just, it's just a funny story so far. And it's also, you know, c- compared to like all the other Isekai stuff that we've, especially the ones we've talked about, like, uh, when we talk about licenses and stuff, like I think this is one of the this is one of the more comedic ones that I'm kind of all about, honestly. Like I'm totally up for keeping up with this one, especially since there's 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 a mysterious talking bear at the end of chapter two. I don't know how you don't want to read the rest of this after being introduced to that character, but that's just me. <laughs> so yeah, I'm I'm gonna say there's a pretty good chance I'll try to keep up with this one. Yeah, very fun read. Um, but actually, we do have another Isekai manga cyberpub to talk about with uh, Restaurant to Another World New Edition. Sort of a reverse Isekai, as it's fantasy, characters from fantasy world coming into kind of the normal world, as it were. That's true. And Lum, I know you had like a bit of info on this in particular. Uh, I mean, I have experience with it because I've seen, I watched the first season of anime when it came out a few years ago. Really loved it. I've read the first manga adaptation, which is also available on Crunchyroll and is been released physically by Yen Press. And yeah, this is a newer adaptation of the manga, like by a separate team from uh, the original. Obviously, the original work was by the original writer, Junpei Inuzaka, but this series is run by Yamizawa Morozawa. The previous series was done by Takaki uh, Kungatsu. Uh, but yeah, like, interestingly, both series start off with, like, the same story. They both start off with the Sarah Gold mincemeat cutlet story, which I thought was interesting that this new series would start off with the same story as the first one. In the anime, they adapted that story as, like, uh, the first segment of the second episode. So, interesting choices there. But, yeah, I mean, I like Restaurant to Another World. Basically, the premise of Restaurant to Another World is that, like, every Saturday, basically, a door opens up in this Western-style Japanese restaurant called Western Restaurant Nekoya. And a bunch of characters from this uh, fantasy world, they basically can pop in through this door that pops up, like, in different places all over this world that leads into the restaurant. And they basically go there to have, like, meals they can only have there because uh, in their fantasy world, they 
really don't have cuisine like this. And they really enjoy it and they really get into it. So it becomes like a weekly tradition for them. And then in the first chapter of uh, this series, like it's the Sarah Gold story where Sarah Gold, you know, she's this adventurer. Her grandfather was like great adventurer called William Gold. Uh, and like she like is trying to hunt for his treasure that he would go like and every like Saturday into this cave to visit. And she thinks, oh, this treasure is there. And then she finds the door to Western Nicoya and she goes through it and she ends up deciding to just try a dish there and just happens to pick that the dish uh, William Gold always used to order, which is the minced meat cutlet. And she really, really enjoys it. And, uh, yeah, she can see why William Gold would come here, like, every time to have this meal over and over again. So she ends up becoming a patron of the restaurant, and she becomes a fairly recurring character in the series. And there are other recurring characters. There are a lot of other different stories with different types of fantasy characters uh, who come in and visit the restaurant and get really into a particular dish or two. And... Yeah, like, that's just kind of the form of the series. Is that, like, you have, like, interesting fantasy-type character come into the restaurant, and they get really into a dish that the restaurant serves. And then, yeah, the main characters are, like, the master. He's really only known as the master of the restaurant, who inherited the restaurant from his grandfather. And then Aletta, who is a demon kin, who ends up getting hired on by him to be his assistant because being a demon hitcher is ostracized a lot in uh, daily life in her world. But in the restaurant, like Master treats her very kindly and, you know, it helps uh, her earn some money and stuff like that. So, yeah, you know, I, I like this series a lot. I think with the first chapter of this new series, if I were to compare it to the other, the previous series, I feel in terms of execution of story, I didn't like this much because with the previous series, first introduction like first of all when we when sarah comes to the restaurant there are other people there like the restaurant is full of other people already there in this new version like she comes and there's no one else there even though like the door only happens on the same day so all the regulars everyone comes at the same time to the restaurant so it should be crowded so i like that detail in the original series but also i feel like the beats of like telling Sarah about like you know William and the fact that he was a regular and then the master's own relationship to William and it's like you're reflecting on that by Sarah like making the same orders he did and then like there's a great scene in the original version of the story in this uh in the previous manga where he's watching Sarah eat the cutlet and he sees a vision of like William Gold sitting at the same table with her telling it's good and he like smiles to himself and you can tell that when he like gives Sarah like the extra servings that like he mi- really missed William and it really made him happy to see that you know see Sarah there and like remind him of him so I felt like it did better like pulling on those emotional beats uh to the story in that first chapter in the previous manga with this one though i think uh the strength of it is definitely the art i think the art's a lot cleaner i think the paneling is pretty smooth the previous manga adaptation was a little more cluttered in terms of the density of uh, panels and words and stuff this one allows a little more room to be and i like the character designs a lot uh interestingly aletta is in the first chapter like at the start whereas you know, the previous adaptation, you know, she wasn't there. And then in the anime, she is there at this point because uh, she's introduced in the first episode. And then Sarah's uh, episode is episode two. But yeah, it's just an interesting adaptational change uh, between the different adaptations of the story. 
But uh, yeah, I think uh, overall it's a fine adaptation. I like the art a lot. Uh, a lot of these stories, though, are kind of covering the same stories that were done in the previous manga and in the anime. And I only read the first chapters on Crunchyroll because since I have the Crunchyroll subscription, I'm like, well, I'll just wait to read all the chapters here, then, you know, buy the rest on Bookwalker or not, because eventually, presumably, I'll come to Crunchyroll, so I might as well wait. But from what I read the first chapter and comparing it with the anime in the previous manga, I feel like... I really like the art in this. This might be the strongest art-wise, but in terms of the storytelling, I like the other, the other adaptations of this particular story I've seen more. But I like Restaurant to Another World a lot in general, and getting to reread this and then rereading the manga is like, man, I really should uh, start watching the second season. Now that it's out, like, I kind of was waiting for the dub, and now I'm like, man, I have fond memories of watching the show every week when it was coming out, while I was having dinner and whatnot. It was always such a great dinner time show and series, just very chill, very fun little stories of, like, fantasy characters just enjoying, like, western-style dishes, so... Yeah, it was just nice to revisit the series uh, in another form again. Mm. So this is interesting because I've had no prior experience with Restaurant to Another World before this. Um, I I had friends who like really like the anime in particular and have always like recommended it to me and I just hadn't really like gotten around to it. So this was my first exposure to Restaurant to Another World basically and uh, I'm actually caught up. I've read all four chapters that are out on like Bookwalker anyway. And yeah, it'll, it'll, it's kind of, I, I guess we'll have to wait and see when they'll add the other chapters to Crunchyroll. I'm sure they'll get added eventually, but, um, yeah. Um, so I guess as far as like what the other chapters cover, so chapter two actually like, I guess covers the origin of how Aletta found the restaurant and came to work for the master. I figured they'd revisit that series. Like basically looking at the titles, it seems like, yeah, they did Aletta joining and then they had a chapter with the dragon lady. Uh, one of the chapters interesting I didn't recognize is something I got adapted into the anime, but I think it was in the previous manga. I don't quite remember. But Yeah, chapter three uh, introduces Tatsugoro, a samurai, which I thought was pretty good. Oh, yeah, then, yeah, I know that story. So, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, um, yeah th- this being my first outing with Restaurant to Another World, I, um, I'm really enjoying it. It's just, it's like you said, it's just a nice, chill series, you know, about these colorful characters, let's say, finding this restaurant, coming in, trying the food, and just having a chill time. Like, it, it's it's a really relaxing read. Um, I definitely liked uh, Chapter 3 with uh, Tatsugoro in particular, because I'm, I'm a sucker for samurai and samurai characters, so he was pretty cool. Uh, and, um... <laughs> I I gotta say, I kind of hate the series for uh, kind of introducing me to the concept of dragon women, because now that's all I think about. <laughs> um, man, I just, she should, how do you, I don't, look, if there was any way to, like, uh, hook me into reading more of this, it's, uh, it was definitely chapter four, where, I mean, first off, like, it starts off with, like, this dragon literally coming to the restaurant, and it's like, oh, well, mm-hmm. that's pretty cool, and then it turns into a hot lady, like, and, and then she and then she comes in specifically to eat the beef stew, and the beef stew also looks amazing. And now I want beef stew. Like, yeah. <sighs> well, I'm sure there's a reason that the anime starts that as the first episode. The hook in people like you. Oh, uh, I mean, honestly, if I watched the first episode of the anime, it probably it probably would have hooked me. Honestly, like I I kind of hate this manga for introducing. Uh, I don't know what you a new fetish. I don't know if I really want to call it that, but it's <laughs> but it's like I don't know. She's just she's hot. I don't know what you want me to say. Like 
it j- just just something about those like uh because they dedicate at least like two pages to like two or three pages to her just eating beef stew and i don't know that was just i don't know if maxi has uh influenced me or not but there's just something about it that uh that i really enjoyed <laughs> um yeah but yeah, no, this was like I said, I, I didn't really um I didn't really have any any prior experience with like either the original manga or the anime. So in terms of like being a newcomer, I thought this was pretty good. I, I would be interested in like I guess checking out the original manga, especially watching the anime now. I might I might actually check it out. And again, like I was saying with Reborn as a vending machine, I would not say no to like keeping up with this actually. I might I might I might try to keep reading this as it's coming out. So I, I I think it's hooked me. I I think I really liked this. Um, oh, excellent. Also, I guess just worth noting, um, we originally thought about like covering a lot of the other Katakawa simul pubs, but I think we might try to do that at some point down the line in another episode. Maybe that's a huge maybe. Yeah, there's just so many of them, and a lot of them honestly are all like fantasy series. Not necessarily isekai, but they're all like fantasy type series. So. You know, to cover a lot of those at once might get a little... I worry it might get a little repetitive, but a little, you know, it's maybe. worth investigating to check those series out. I will say that localization-wise, I thought this was done pretty well. I yeah, guess, yeah. Which I was worried about Kataka's, like proclamation that, oh, we're going to fast-track these releases and hire like agency services, which they did do for this series, but the actual translation lettering I thought was actually done pretty well, so... I didn't have a problem with it, though. I and I, I hope the people who are working on it are being paid decent rates. But uh, that's something to investigate at our time. Yeah, um, I mean, I agree. Uh, I thought I thought the localization and translation for this was done very well. Uh, again, espe- especially considering, like, again, how sometimes certain series being done by agencies don't always end up in the best quality probably mostly because of like how shitty the pay is sometimes and i i I, and i I, again i I can't blame them like that's just you get what you paid for with some of these things so i totally understand that but um again for all the worries we had about that kind of thing uh, i thought this ended up reading pretty well we'll have to see how uh their translations or their other simul pubs do but this this one at the very least was good i i didn't have any problems with it personally like you said it it read very well so there's that and yeah i personally i i would recommend this I, again this was this was just a nice read i really enjoyed this i will definitely be re- be reading more of this I recommend this franchise in general. This particular manga, I think, has some really strong art. It might be the best-looking iteration. Um, I mean, I guess the anime has the benefit of color, though. Character design-wise, I think it's very strong. Storytelling-wise, I think the other versions of this, of this particular story, I think, were done a little stronger. But I still think it's an enjoyable read. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think that's about all we can say for that. And, uh, we only have just a few more Simulpubs to talk about, and, uh, we're gonna talk about some Simulpubs from Comic Key, which is pretty cool. These were the first series I ever read on Comic Key, and I, just to kind of get this out of the way, I, I actually really enjoy reading stuff on Comic Key, and, uh, like, I, I think their system in terms of, like, you know, how, uh, how to buy, like, keys for, like, you know, individual chapters that you like, you can like unlock on their service or whatever. I, 
I was afraid that, like, I was going to have, like, trouble with that, or, like, I, I wasn't really sure what their system was going to be going in, but, like, trying it out myself, like, I think the service is really worthwhile, like, uh, like, I, I did not mind buying keys to, like, unlock chapters, and I'm, it, it's, it's looking like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's so far, uh, because one of the things I was also kind of afraid of was, like, oh, I could buy keys to unlock chapters, but I don't know if they're going to become, like, lockable afterwards or not, but it seems like you can just, like, keep those chapters that you unlock. Yeah, you keep the chapters you unlock. Okay, that's, and and that's good. I, I wasn't, I wasn't sure, like, how that worked, but okay, cool. So, Comic Key, good service, I would really highly recommend it, and they do have some good stuff on here, though... I say that, but I think we're going to talk first about the thing, the, the silo pub that I think is like the the thing that I like kind of was soured on the most out of everything we're talking about here. Yeah, Beneath the Mask by Anne Nikokawa and Nineko Kobata. This seemingly is coming out like in a monthly schedule, like on the 15th of every month. Basically, the premise of this is that the daughter of this duke is engaged to the first prince of this kingdom. And the story starts out with the prince and his lover accusing her of trying to assassinate uh, his lover, Amelie, and trying to harass her by tearing her dress or uh, vandalizing her belongings and stuff like that. And then as the chapter goes on... Katya, the protagonist's brother, comes in, who is like a duke called Tori, and he has all this evidence that disproves everything that Amelie is saying about her. And then they basically kind of rag on her for being like someone of low station who doesn't know any better, is acting insolent and stuff like that. And they like humiliate her by disproving all her claims and humiliate the prince. And then they kind of walk off, kind of all high and mighty. And then, like, one of the big criticisms against her is, like, oh, you you are attacking Amelie because you're jealous of her because you're ugly beneath your mask. But wouldn't you know it? Beneath her mask, she actually has a pretty normal face, I guess. She, the only reason she's wearing the mask is because there's this ruled tradition that she can't remove her mask outside the presence of family until her coming of age ceremony, which happens by the end of the second chapter. So the whole premise of, like, her hiding her face in the mask is no longer even in play, which is kind of odd. I thought that would be the hook. Or something, or one of the defining aesthetic gimmicks of the premise. Uh, but regardless, the story has just continued to be like the prince and his lover are trying to kind of bully her into like apologizing to them or like going along with what they want. Like they are saying, Oh, you know, you will let you off the hook and let you even be the prince's second wife if you like apologize or whatnot. And they're like, No. I'm not doing that. And then they show them up again at like this ball that everyone attends where she reveals her face and like everyone is taken aback and all that. And yeah, that's essentially the series in a nutshell. I guess another element is that, oh, her brother is not really her brother. It's, uh, they, I guess she was adopted into the family. But they're not biologically related. And she also has like magic power, it seems. Because like the, there are like, Made assistants that were hired that like apparently infiltrated their estate and passed off of like, you know, working for them when they're actually working for Amelie or the prince or whatever. They were going to poison the duke with like an aphrodisiac, but Katya drinks it herself and then she can like use magic to like take the liquid out of her body and then she's going to 
analyze it or whatever. So I guess there isn't been explained that she has some sort of magical ability to do that. So ultimately, this was not a very strong series because it's like so mean spirited. Like it's like basically the patterns are at uh, their the position they stand on is one of like looking down on other characters and like the uh, protagonists they oppose are not likable in any respect but it's really not a great look for the protagonists and not really su- doesn't make them super compelling and sympathetic when the place they're coming from is like oh we are a higher of a higher class and station than this woman who is just a whisk daughter and just doesn't know proper manners and etiquettes of how to behave at us you should have never tried to ingratiate yourself with us or approached us without us talking to you first you should know your place or whatnot and that's like so bizarre i don't know why it's supposed to be cathartic or satisfying to see her constantly humiliate this woman i don't know what's like super compelling about like the conflict between them and in terms of like amelie desires to have a relationship with the prince and then Bacadia has no interest in it at all so it's like i guess it's more about like maintaining her own status and maintaining her dupe status, but we don't really know what is like her ultimate goal in all this. Ultimately, it's just to you know make it big in high society and like just be respected and feared. And I don't super get necessarily what I'm supposed to latch onto so far. So yeah, ultimately, I thought it was very unpleasantly mean spirited and also kind of annoyingly classist in a way I really did not like. Uh, enjoy reading yeah i thought this was just straight up bad honestly <laughs> like he- yeah the art's not very interesting either and it's the whole big reveal like oh katya is actually very beautiful like she looks okay like the characters are look okay she doesn't like necessarily look that's much stunningly beautiful that like i'm like oh wow you can see why other people are so impressed or so taken aback like whoa that was her face beneath the mask so it's like, okay, it's not really a big hook. And then you remove the whole aesthetic hook of like her wearing the mask in the second chapter. Like now she doesn't have a reason to wear it because now everyone's seen her face and she's had this coming of age ceremony. So what's the point? So I don't quite understand what direction this is supposed to go. Yeah, this was just a slog to read. Like there's 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 so much fucking like exposition and dialogue. There's too much text. Like I, I think I was like halfway through chapter two when I like I was like looking at the page count and I was like, oh, there's still more. <laughs> like when when I'm like checking the page count actively, like I think that's the sign of like at least a series that just doesn't sit well with me at all. Something I just don't enjoy. Um, and and also like the first chapter, like it feels like we're just kind of dropped in the middle of a story. Mm-hmm. Like it feels like we missed out on a bunch of build up, like that we were supposed to go through to get to the point the series starts at. And I, and I'm not really sure. Like I I think you said it best like I, I don't know why this is supposed to be compelling and i'm not really sure like why i'm supposed to care about anything that's going on about these people that i barely know anything about yeah because we don't have that context it's not much of a mystery of like oh are the claims that emily is throwing at katya true in any way or like how is she like framing them? how is she going to get out of these accusations because like the solution is a bunch of information a bunch of understanding of how this world how the this political system operates how this class system operates that we wouldn't really know we weren't really introduced to we don't know the rules we don't know yeah like why the lies don't hold that why they don't stick like we can't like figure out the holes and like the scheme here 
as readily until like, oh, here's a big exposition dump about why this person is a liar and why she can't be trusted. I, I know I've said it a lot throughout the podcast, and I'm sorry for repeating myself, but I, I genuinely mean it when I say I, I don't have anything else to say about this other than it was just, I just didn't like it, and I'm not planning on reading any more of it. This one just, like, really turned me off and just made certain choices that, like, I just don't really understand the thought process behind, like, why certain story decisions were made, like, what why we start off the way we do and where we do, like, I don't know, it just... It was kind of confusing, and again, like, I hate reading comics with, like, way too much text, and this was, the yeah, this this was this was just a slog. I didn't enjoy it at all, honestly. I wouldn't recommend it. Yeah. The other series that we were for coming to you, though, are all way better. Oh, yeah. They're way better. Um, Let's start off with the way better series. Um, Why don't we talk about Girl Crush? Girl Crush is really... I like it a lot. I mentioned it before. I mentioned Girl Crush uh, before alongside Beneath the Mask when we first, like I mentioned, they got at it. But Girl Crush is basically about this girl who in elementary school was ostracized because she was kind of a gloomy loner type. And there was a bunch of drama where family were like her mom cheated on her dad and then abandoned her. And so like she was left on the school and didn't have many friends except for like one friend of hers, Harumi, who would always like reach out to her and saw like she was really good at a lot of things that a lot of potential and tried to get her to like, you know, open up more. And because, you know, Tenka, the protagonist, had like a crush on him and he she wanted to become someone who could stand by him because Harumi is like the super sociable, popular person too, and she wanted to also be kinda like that. So she completely changes her image starting in middle school and shows off all her talents and starts excelling in nearly everything and becomes a cool girl by high school and becomes the girl cost of a lot of people in high school, including uh Aaron Sato, who is a Pigtailed girl who really loves K-pop, really loves singing and dancing. She looks up to Momose. She wants to be an idol. And Momose learns that Sato uh, works alongside Harumi at like this store that they work at. And then she kind of gets a little jealous. And so she starts to challenge Sato to prove herself in her singing and dancing. And then she gets kind of threatened by the fact that, oh, Sato is actually really good and really earnest and really sincere. And she gets insecure with the fact that Harumi like really is taking note of her and says that he likes her because he likes hardworking people and he uh, admires her enthusiasm and her dedication. So that also convinces Tenka to also compete with her for Harumi's attention and also taking the steps to become a k-pop idol so i like the setup to this like even though it would be so easy to make tenka just like a kind of catty jealous bully to sato she's a little more subtle like she she is trying to kind of set up sato to fail in some way but she also is generally trying to make her prove herself to prove that she's good at this. So even though she has like these days, like, isn't it hard to try so hard at something and not be great at it? Because like, you know, in the first karaoke scene they have, like, uh, Sato sings a song and she gets like an 70 something, but then Tenka sings the same song and she gets like a 93. So she gets like a high score, even though she's like kind of an amateur at the singing. But like, you know, Sato isn't perturbed by this at all. Like she, 
like really admires that about Mosey and like asks for tips and generally earnest and sincere about anything. And so, you know, despite herself, despite like being jealous of Sato in some way, like Mimosi does end up like helping her and ending up forming a friendly rivalry with her. So yeah, like I really appreciate the direction of the story. And I think it's like a cool, like kind of competitive, friendly rivalry manga in the world of K-pop. And uh, yeah, I'm really interested in seeing where it's going to continue to go and how the relationship between these two girls is going to continue to grow and their journey to become K-pop idols. Yeah, I thought this was interesting. I, like you said, uh, I really like the relationship between Momose and Sato. Like you said, like, it would have been really easy for this to be, like, super unpleasant and to have Momose, like, constantly go after Sato and, like, make her life a living hell just to, like, erase the competition or whatever. But, like, her relationship with Sato is actually, like, pretty nuanced. And, like, I, I guess to me, like, she, she never came off to me as, like, oh, she's just out to get her and, again, to make her life a living hell. Yeah, they you know, they go together to, to join the same agency. Like, they are comrades in arms as much as like she sees her as a romantic rival and she generally it does help sato in a lot of regards and does give her advice and tips so she doesn't let her jealousy get in the way of like be just being a good person or helping her out so i appreciate that yeah i kind of got the sense that like momose kind of like sees like a bit of herself in sato or like like see sees like uh because uh I, I think the page that kind of stood out to me was uh specifically when uh she's talking to her and trying to give her advice and she can't help but like think back on her time you know uh confronting her mother about like you know all the drama that's going on and uh you know mimose you know yelling at her mother being like well did you ever think about me and like how this would affect me or whatever yeah she doesn't want someone to take away something she cares about through a weak-willed effort so that's why she's like kind of challenging Sato there to be like, hey, prove that you can do this, prove that you're good at this and like you're worthy of the attention that Harumi is showing you and that you are like a real rival in Chandra. And, you know, it's this whole talk and all that because I have tried and I have pushed myself also to get his attention. And if you are getting your attention to his attention just naturally, like I want you to, to show that there's a good reason why. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think their rivalry is like, uh, I, I think the best part of the series so far. Mm-hmm. Again, it's just, it's just nice to see that they have a rivalry in that Momose does, on some level, she's sort of like jealous of her and like doesn't want her to like show her up, but like still in her own way kind of cares about her enough to like kind of help prop her up and like uh be be there to like help her and like give her advice like when she needs it to like you know she she, she doesn't just want to like th- totally take her down because like she just sees her as like competition or whatever i mean on sato's part like i think she sees momose someone more as like someone who looks up to and then like her friend more so than a rival like the rivalry i think is like a little more one-sided on momose's part but like i think that does create an interesting tension because she also in addition to being her seeing her as a rival she does also see her as a friend but that also you know in the latest chapter where it ends like that causes like this this moment of like uh tensions like oh man like this friend of mine or this rival of mine like they are getting a leg up in their career and am i falling out am i losing out so yeah it's it's interesting i want to see how the dynamic between them continues to develop and change over time as they continue to pursue this career Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I, I think something else I'm kind of also interested in, something that I kind of uh, took notice of when they're 
taking like dancing classes or whatever is um is that obviously Momose is like really talented or whatever uh but I kind of wonder if they're going to go into this thing where like cuz she's really good at like I guess copying other people's dance moves but I wonder if that's going to lead into a thing where it's like you know she's so like she's like too efficient to the point of like she doesn't have her own style yeah basically yeah. uh I I kind of wonder if that's going to like kind of see like if that's going to be like a big conflict kind of like moving forward uh, I'm interested in seeing if like they're going to do anything more with that because I I think I think you could get like a pretty good like uh sort of like a, a character arc out of that like her learning how to like have her own style essentially absolutely yeah this this was this was interesting um is especially also interesting because like I'm really not like into the K-pop scene like I don't have anything against K-pop but like uh it's just not something I really dabble in. Like I have a lot of friends who are very, very into K-pop uh, on a very scary level. Um, hmm. But yeah, th- again, this was just another series that was interesting because like, it's just interesting to kind of take a look into the world of something that like, I really don't have a lot of like familiarity with. So that aspect of it makes it an even more interesting read for me personally. Yeah. And also mentioned just the character to mana conflicts. Like Mimose is so motivated by, you know, winning the attention of this person she loves. Whereas like Sato is primarily motivated by like, this is, this is the thing she loves, like K-pop, like singing, dancing. This is her dream. And then Momose is like competing with her just for attention. That's often, that's a lot of what she has been doing. Like she doesn't have so much of a dream of her own as so much as like she, everything she has done has been to get the attention of this one guy. And I wonder like when that will have like a breaking point where she has some self-realization. Like, what do I really want? What am I really passionate about? besides this one person so i think there's just so much potential and so much interesting things that can be done with these characters this relationship and their character arcs and i just absolutely love the art of the series i love the character designs i think all the dancing scenes are really great like and they're such fierce moments like when uh, sato is doing her performance at the like school festival or whatever and like she's on the stage and like she's singing herself i want to be a cool girl like she has like this pose has this look that genuinely is like fierce and cool oh yeah which is like really 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 cool yeah like i really like the art moments in the series i really like the designs like it's just really really pretty and fashionable as you would expect and want out of a k-pop series that is like delving into that world so mm-hmm. yeah a lot of fun really really enjoying it yeah, yeah. I would not mind trying to keep up with this. At the very least, I wouldn't mind, like, maybe letting, like, a few chapters build up every once in a while and maybe just kind of binging through a few of them, you know? But yeah, overall, pretty good. Um, But I think we could talk about our next thing from Comic Key with It Takes More Than a Pretty Face to Fall in Love. Yeah, this comes from Karen Onsai, and this one excited me because this is actually a series that runs on Hanato Yume, so oh. this that's one of the major shoujo magazines, so it's so great to have, like, a a big a shoujo simulpa from one of the bigger shoujo magazines like available so yeah that's why i was really excited for this and i think uh, this is a really fun one it's a neat premise where it's like this girl is like super thirsty for good looking guys and essentially there's a particular guy ugo kanato who's become very famous because he's like a very popular model because of his attractive looks so even though he doesn't have like social media accounts like he's considered an influencer without social media because he's just that popular and everything he's on like sells and people go crazy for and he ends up being in pictures of the social media account and she like dms the manager the admin of the social media account and saying, like hey 
keep up the great work. And then he actually gets a response from the admin. He's like, hey, uh, do you see this magic? Can you help me figure out how this social media stuff works? And so she ends up doing that. And the next day, wouldn't she know it? The person who was in charge with the social media account, the, the person she was DMing all night, was in fact Kanato. And he asked her, because of her expertise and knowledge of social media stuff, because he's not very good at it, to be the social media manager. Because he was tasked with getting the school's social media account uh, to 100,000 followers. Because the school, even though it's a pretty neat school in terms of some of the amenities that it has, like they don't require you to wear uniforms... And they have like a credit system because of its location, because like a lot of the extracurriculars they have aren't that great. It's not a very popular school. So the principal wants to increase like the school's popularity, increase enrollment. And so because he recognizes Kanato is something of an influencer and I left like he isn't really sure what the term is. So you can tell like this is a boomer guy like trying to ask like a <laughs> millennials like, hey, uh, you know what this thing is. You can you do this? Can you figure out this how the social media stuff works? <laughs> Uh, but unfortunately, and like the, he gives like Kanato this second chance because Kanato has been skipping a lot of classes so much that he is being held back a year. And so he's in danger of even being scaled because he keeps missing classes. So he tells him, you know, you get the school social media account, 100,000 followers and get the school's enrollment up and I won't expel you. And even though Kanato doesn't really care about school, he still needs to enroll, be enrolled in school to keep up his appearances for like his, you know, modeling work and stuff. So, you know, that's why he needs Asana's help to, like, run the social media account because he isn't very good at it because he's is not super familiar with it. And then, like, through their conversation and interactions, like, Sana comes to recognize that Uko is very frustrated by the fact that, you know, people only see him skim deep. People only judge him and like him for his appearances and his looks, but they don't really respect that he's, like, a real person with feelings and other things going on with him. And they make assumptions about his personality based on hearsay rumors because he has kind of, like, a reserved, kind of more gloomy personality just because he's... He's come to mistrust people because they only judge him superficially. So he's a little more aloof. And so he doesn't, like, his feelings and his thoughts don't come across clearly to other people. He can communicate clearly to other people. But so, like, Sana interacting with him, she becomes more aware of that and, like, tries to help him reveal more of his real self through their social media campaign. And so they start off with, you know, some good success. Like immediately they get like 30,000 followers on the first day, but they're still working up to the 100,000. Uh, and then Ugo and Sana's relationship is continuing to deepen because Ugo is starting to get very protective of Sana and jealous of like other guys crowding around him to the point where he's like saying, hey, you know, don't wear your hair a certain way or like other guys are going to get too close to you. So he's getting a little, a little too overprotective. But at the same time, like, Sana is also helping him kind of interact more with the school because, like, he is convinced to go back to class because Sana's there and they're going to be all, in all the same classes together, uh, both for the social media campaign, but also because now Ugo is kind of feeling comfortable and happy that he's found someone who is, like, an actual friend to him, like, someone who is actually trying to understand him for who he is. And is sticking up for him too when other people like bad mouth him. So yeah, that's kind of just where the story is at. It's like these two are trying to do these social media campaigns. The relationship is kind of deepening. Like Asana, you know, she's like so head over heels for his looks. But now she's also slowly 
getting really invested in him as a person too like and they're going kind of like basically dates and stuff as they're hanging out together a lot so yeah i think it's just a cute uh, romance story so far and uh i'm yeah i'm really glad to have like a shoujo series from Hanjime like get a simulpub and I'm curious to see like what how it's gonna continue to progress and keep following it from there and I think the art is really gorgeous I really love the designs I think the practice have like fun personalities and contrast each other very well with how like kind of over enthusiastic sound is and how more like reserved Ugo is so yeah I think it's a some fun contrast and it's a fun setup for like a long running romance and then, of course, like, there's another, like, romantic, potential romantic interest into a guy, Gikun, who's, like, a guy who wears his hair, like, down over his eyes. But, of course, you know, probably very pretty guy if he wore his hair differently. But, yeah, and Uko is jealous of him as well. But, yeah, some good rom-com stuff. I, I am waiting for that reveal where it's, like, he pulls it, he pulls the hair out of his eyes and he's, like, oh, he's gorgeous. Oh, no, he's hot. <laughs> Um, yeah, this was this was pretty cute. I, I, I like this, actually. Uh, I, I really like the sort of conceit for the series where it's like, yeah, th- this girl has to like help this guy get a bunch of followers on like the school social media account. And they, you know, uh, she 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 learns to like actually see him as a person and not as just like a, a tall, handsome guy or whatever, like literally everyone else does. And, you know, it, it, w- it would be easy for like, I-, I could see like some people reading this and being like, oh, that guy's hot, like, and he has a bunch of followers or whatever, like, what's he have to, what's he have to worry about or whatever? But like, you can like genuinely understand like, uh, or you could easily put yourself in in the shoes of him and, and understand like, kind of how he feels and like what he's going through because like i can only imagine like what it would be like to go through having people all the time not really see you for who you are and just judge you on your appearances like i can only i can only imagine like how emotionally draining that would be for some people honestly absolutely like i think he's a very sympathetic person because he's like he just wants people to see him as a person not just as a pretty face and for what it's worth sana slowly has come to love him for who he is and like there's this big thing is like okay once we hit like the hundred thousand goal i'm gonna confess my feelings to you so and that's kind of interesting because where they are now is like they're pretty close to the hundred thousand like they only, yeah. they're like at over seventy thousand so it's like you know, this story in terms of the relationship between them romantically, it's moving pretty fast. So I'm curious to see like uh, future story developments from there. We we just mentioned like, oh, there's possibly another like romantic interest with uh, Doigaki or whatever that might like throw a wrench in the things. Or I, I could see there being like maybe an, maybe another girl who comes in and like uh, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe like finds out that like, oh, she she's like the social media manager or whatever, and maybe like throw a wrench in the things that way. Like I can I can only imagine like there's going to be a wrench thrown in the things somewhere along the way to keep this from like ending too soon. Maybe I don't know, because because you're right, like they're really close to like their goal, because I think I want to say they got up to like 85,000 followers. Or I might be remembering that wrong, but I, I know they got, like, really, really super close to the point where it's like, oh, if you wanted to end this, I guess you could end this soon, but, like, I don't know, I'm... Yeah, actually, they're... At the latest chapter, they got to 89,000. Okay, so, like, I was they're, close. They're very close to 100,000. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of interested in seeing, like... I can't imagine this series is going to end, like, this soon, so... I don't know, I'm, I'm sure they'll find a way to, like 
keep this going. But it, hopefully we it won't feel like, oh, we have to extend the story because we're getting too close to our goal. Like, hopefully it's, like, executed naturally, hopefully. That's kind of my only hope. But so far, I, I do like the relationship between the two of them. I, I do think... Uh, I do think it's it's been done very well, and uh, it's the art's good, and um, it's just cute. I, I really like it so far. Yeah, absolutely. If you've been looking for Shoujo Silent Pubs, you know, they've been in short supply, but this is a definite one to add to your roster. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would feel okay recommending this. Um, let's get into our last series that we're going to talk about from Comic Key, the one that made me start buying keys in the first place with uh, Killer in Love. Yeah. So, Killer in Love is a story about, like, this introverted guy who was kind of like a nerd in high school. He trying to try to change his image, going to college, and sort of worked his way into a new social circle, but it's kind of exhausting to him. So, at one of these drinking parties that he's with, like, he kind of leads to the restroom to escape, and, like... He notices uh, two different occasions that also standing in the hallway is this girl, Gokoa, who's like a very beautiful girl who's like, you know, more, who's pretty popular among this friend group in the social circle. Uh, but she also has been getting away from the party to like kind of escape because it's just too much of an exhausting environment for her as well. And so they actually start up a conversation and rapport and it turns out they have a lot of similar interests. And because of the good connection they kind of start creating like she kind of confides to him and asks him for help like someone has been stalking her and she would like him to pretend to be her boyfriend in an effort to ward them off and then at the next social occasion they have with their friend group it comes out because one of the people in the friend group Arata is like a total jerk who has the hots for Kokoa and is trying to make moves on her and is also continually like, bad-mouthing Suzuki and insulting her. And, like, at this party, like, it comes to a point where Kokoa can't take it. And she, like, defends Suzuki and calls him her boyfriend. And so then that kind of comes out. And just when, like, things start to hit the fan and Arata is, like, starting to get violent with Suzuki, one of her stalkers, one of Kokoa's stalker, like, knifes Arata. And then in the ensuing conflict, like, he tries to, like, kidnap uh, Kokoa, but then, like, Suzuki, like, tr- like fights back against him, and in the ensuing scuffle, like, he kind of stabs the stalker in the stomach. And so, after this incident, because it gets, like, filmed and stuff, like, people on social media start, like, kind of harassing Suzuki, like, the police, like, have taken him and say, like, if this guy turns up dead, like, depending on how things go, you could get, like, arrested and go to jail for a long time for this so Suzuki thinks his life is over and he also starts to become like a little distrustful of Kokoa because he's like wait a minute why did that guy know that we were there Kokoa is like texting all this time like he said that like when he came and attacked Kokoa he's like you didn't respond to your Ryan messages why did she not block this guy if he was uh, her stalker harassing her so he, he becomes a little distrustful of Kokoa but like at his apartment like Kokoa comes to like kind of console him after the incident and he decides to let go of suspicions because he considers Kokoa being sincere. But just at that moment, of course, that soccer guy comes back and like attacks them again. And in that ensuing scuffle, like the soccer guy is like going to kill Kokoa and stuff like that. So he basically he nearly kills the guy. And so they decide to like bury the body and like go away together. But it turns out that guy wasn't dead. So this time, with the intent to kill, like, he has to kill and bury that guy. 
which is intense scene. And then from there, like, they basically make this hack, like, hey, let's go on the run together. Because, like, after he's first thinks he's killed a guy, Suzuki was about to, like, commit suicide. But, like, uh, Kokoa Sasa and say, hey, no, you should live. We should both live together. And so now they are officially like a couple and they go to Disneyland. But while at Disneyland, an old friend, quote unquote, of uh, Kokoa's, Kisaragi sees her there. And apparently... Koko and Kisaragi had made plans to go to Disneyland at that same day, but she canceled on him to go with Suzuki instead. And he's angry about that. And he's been obsessed with Kokoa since they were like in middle school or whatever. Like he used to not be a very popular guy, not me as much as a ladies man, but like he's changed himself. Like after seeing Kokoa be friendly with a more like popular type guy at their school, despite having feelings for her and that has twisted him to becoming like this crazy murderer guy and like he kidnaps Kakoa and then Suzuki has to rescue her and then they fight him and they kill, have to kill him and it seems like the plot of the story is like it gives me an escalating sequence of like them running into crazy stalkers or people finding out the secret of what they've done in terms of the the murders they've committed and them continuing to like pile up a body gun as they try to go on the run and live a life together as a couple because now like after having killed Kisaragi and now after like needing to go on the run again like just go completely somewhere else because they think that the trail will lead back to them after this latest one. Like he, Suzuki goes to his cousin to get her car to just go and travel somewhere else. And then, you know, she can, like, so this, even though he tries to downplay the fact that they are a couple, like, Kyokoa ver- makes very suggestive comments that make her suspicious. So she goes to his house to kind of ask him about it. And then he counters them in the car and then asks them for a ride back home. And then she has this, in the latest chapter, she has uh, discovered the murder, the knife they had murdered Kizaragi with. So where are things going to go? So it's like, man, just a sequence of like them killing people to keep the secret and killing people to get on the run while they're, they're trying to have this relationship as it becomes more and more twisted and centered around them committing all these murders and stuff like that. So, uh, I mean, first off, if we haven't made it clear, a huge content warning for this series, because uh, it gets insanely dark. Uh, it's very graphic. I mean, the first chapter shows uh, Suzuki skating and cutting a person's body apart. You know, this is the first color page spread of the series is showing that. So it's prepare for some graphic violence and prepare for some, you know, very uncomfortable moments of like characters getting assaulted, particularly Kokoa. She has like, she has a lot of moments where she's assaulted by these stalkers and also like nearly raped by Kisaraki. And it's just really uncomfortable awful stuff. Two of the manga's credit though, it's not portrayed in an exploitative way as if for a voyeuristic intent or fan service. It is like yeah. portrayed as a horrific circumstance. But yeah, be prepared for like a lot of violence and sexual violence in the series. Mm-hmm. So well, what, what did you think about this? Because I, I honestly wasn't sure if this was going to be your thing in particular. I think I I really like it, actually, because okay. I think there's a lot of uh, nuances to the character's relationship. I think that a lot of people are making the assumption, at least based on what, uh, the comments I'm reading, that Kakoa is, like, manipulating Suzuki into killing these people or, like, she's just using him. Hmm. I don't really read that 
as being the case because really? based on okay. clues in some recent chapters in particular my read is that kakoa is genuinely in love with suzuki and wants someone in her life like her idea of what love is is like love is being considerate of and being willing to do anything for another person's happiness with that philosophy and love and with the comments she tells Rico, where she criticizes Rico, uh, Rico is like uh, Suzuki's cousin and she has feelings for him and she kind of admits those to Kokoa and Kokoa like chaps her to say, if you really liked him, why didn't you like change yourself to suit more of his tastes? Like, did you just expect to be loved unconditionally? And so with how kind of pitch perfect it seemed like their taste align, my guess or my speculation is that I think Okoa probably liked Suzuki before they had met, had figured out like what he was kind of interested in, and had kind of been molding herself to be someone he would be interesting in and had their taste aligned so much. And I think the reason she does that is because she may have seen in him someone who she felt she could be safe with because of her experience with people like Kisaraki and the stalker guy who get really obsessive and possessive towards her. being like saying they are obligated to her affections and that she owes them to return their love just because like they have such strong feelings towards her even though she doesn't in return and so like that's how i read from like her interactions with these people is like you know she may have like been friends with them at one point and enjoyed their company but like they she didn't have romantic interest in them but they became obsessed with her and violent towards her and that she became scared of them because of that and she wants someone like Suzuki who she can feel safe by, who won't like turn on her, who won't like get possessive and violent, or will be considered of her happiness. And you can see that she genuinely like blushes when Suzuki is like going in to kiss her. And like she smiles when Suzuki is making an effort to ride the scary rides with her. Like that's what she appreciates about She wants in a partner, in a lover, someone who is considerate of her desires and needs too. But the problem is, like, I think she is emotionally manipulating Suzuki in the fact that she isn't totally honest about, like, the fact of why she wants to be in a relationship with him. And I also think that, you know, Suzuki is slowly becoming more and more twisted and obsessed and possessive of her in the same way that all these exes or ex-relationship people who were obsessed with her have been. And have turned him violent. So I, I think there are more nuances to her character than, oh, she's just using people to kill off uh, people she doesn't like and then find someone new to kill off those people. I think, like, she is someone who's been suffering under the brunt of, like, a lot of unwanted affection, stalkish behaviors, which honestly I think would be a is and would be if this is the case is a great commentary on, like, kind of unfortunate attitudes and unfortunate situations, like, women can find themselves in terms of like these obsession and people entitling like uh women return their infections or you know going so far as to assault them out of just this year possessive desire for them so i think it could be a good commentary on that it could be a good commentary on like just this desire to just feel safe with someone who you know and you can trust will do their best to protect you and make you happy uh and that being twisted in this way where like that person is someone who will kill anyone who is like trying to attack you so 
yeah, I, I think there are a lot of nuances to the character. You can tear, definitely tell, though, that she does get a pleasure in being in a relationship with Suzuki because she makes a note. She, like, she gets jealous of Rico, like, being chummy with Suzuki and, like, holding his shoulder, which is why she, like, makes these innuendos like, oh, my panties are ripped. Like, I need to change a pair. Like, she, and she has that really great smirk to her as they're turning away, walking away from Rico, like, a knowing sort of like, hey, you know, I'm with this guy, you are not. Like, she herself does have that kind of that possessive instinct for Suzuki as well. So I, I think the relationship with each other has become more and more codependent, will become more and more twisted and healthy, but I think it's, like, a super interesting place for a story. I think these are super interesting characters. And uh, it, it seems like this will undoubtedly in a tragedy, considering the fact that the first two-page spread is them reflecting on we're in hell, they're, like, crying while watching the news, and Suzuki is, like, skinny up and carving up a body of their latest murder victim but it's like yeah the journey into their depravity and their unhealthy codependent relationship of desperation for just someone to love is is super interesting to read i think the yeah i do wonder like how many other characters like kisaragi or the soccer guy there could possibly be that like are that obsessed with her that they'll be like they're driven to madness and violence that they'll have to come up against or they'll just end up having to keep their secret from people like Riku or just stumble into finding it but uh yeah it has me hooked it's very easy to to read that every chapter has such a great cliffhanger that leads you to the next chapter and just want to continue to see what happens next so uh i quite enjoy this and i think the art is generally strong the horror moments i think that there are some times where hands are drawn weird particularly open palm hands there are some weird moments but overall uh i think there are some very striking horrifying visuals and again i appreciate that the moments of violence uh are not exploitative particularly the uh attempted rape scene which was so uncomfortable but i appreciate it was not done in an exploitative way like this is it is actually portrayed as a moment of horrific violence and a scary thing that is happening to this character who is generally vulnerable and not in control of the situation and it you know it's a tough to read but again it's i think that this story is doing some interesting things with this characters and the dynamic and what is saying how love can make people go crazy to this kind of extreme yeah, seriously. Um, yeah, so uh, this was the first thing I read on Comic Key, and uh, it definitely hooked me because I think the first like five chapters are free on Comic Key, and the end of chapter five is around the point where like uh, her first like stalker boyfriend like comes back to finish the job, and it's just like, man, how do you how do you not like just spend all your money on Comic Key to like read the rest of that? I immediately bought a bunch of keys so I could keep reading. Like it was, it was, it was too good to pass up. Um, and I, I think your read of everything going on, I, I think I pretty much agree with it. Like, you know, like at first I got kind of caught up in the hype of like, Ooh, she's manipulating him and it's going to be like a big turn or whatever. But like, I, I think, I think your read is, I would, I'd say it's mostly pretty correct. Like I, I agree with it. Like, you know, like in retrospect, I think it would be boring if like, oh, Kokowa is just manipulating him to like to like be her bodyguard, essentially. Like, I think it is a little more interesting that like she does. I think she does genuinely have like feelings for him. And, you know, as twisted as this situation is, like it is in a way going to like really bring them closer together. 
no matter how tragic it gets or whatever, like, this series is not going to, like, end well. And by that, I mean it's going to end in, like, the most tragic way. Like, I would be very surprised if this had, like, a happy ending, because I just don't think that's possible at this point. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, it, it's just, like, genuinely really gripping stuff. Like, it was, this was really hard for me to put down. Like, I kind of hate that, like, I started reading it recently, because this this is the kind of thing that, like, man, I really wish every chapter of this was out so I could just read to the end. Like, I kind of I kind of hate that I had to, like, stop reading because there's only so much of it out. Yeah. And unlike the other comic-y titles you mentioned, like, those ones are, like, near simulpugs. Like, they're going to catch up to being simulpugs in the next few weeks, which is why I thought it would be good to cover them now. But, like, Killer Love is already simulpubbing. And it's already on its bi-weekly schedule. Oh. So, yeah. Like, it's going to be quite a wait between chapters. And the chapters are, like, so short they're not just short to read but they're, they're actually short they're like just 15 pages ish so man they go by so fast so it's like very very like uh it just makes you desperate to read the next chapter and see what happens up because of how gripping those cliffhangers are and you're like oh no oh no like what's gonna happen to rico i hope they don't try and kill her because she's found out the secret oh no Oh, man. This is... As much as I would like to keep up with this as it's coming out, I do also wonder if maybe it would be to my benefit to, like, maybe let, like, a few chapters of this build up to, like, maybe read every couple months or something. Yeah. This series feels like a great binge read. Oh, Like, yeah. keeping it up on a bi-weekly schedule, like... I don't know if that's the optimal way. I mean, I, I am invested to the point that I will do that, but, like... I think that the optimal way to read it would probably be all, like, at once. Because, again, the cliffs are such that, like, you just compels you to want to find out what happens next. Mm, man. Uh, also, sh- shout out to the commenter on Comic Key that called this a bloody Scott Pilgrim. Uh, I thought I thought that was <laughs> pretty apt, actually. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> if we are going by Scott Pilgrim rules, then if we have two ex-boyfriends taken out already, now now we just have to... Now we just have to get to the other five. Yeah, including the ex-girlfriend. That's true, that's true. Which maybe is that that other friend of uh, Coco as the Sarga was like telling Suzuki, hey, maybe you shouldn't interact with this person. It was weird. Like, she's her friend, but she's warning Suzuki away from like talking to her and stuff. Like, hey, maybe don't get involved with her. So it's it's interesting. You know, I I kind of forgot about her for a little bit, but like, I am kind of wondering like when we're going to see her again eventually. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if we got that reveal that like, oh, she was like an ex-girlfriend or whatever. Yeah. Well, maybe not even that, but maybe she knows more about Kakoa. At the very least, yeah. Other people. But for some reason, like she is not perturbed enough to not be your friend, but she will still warn other people from like getting too close to her. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Yeah, like, like I said, big content warning if you can't handle certain moments that we've mentioned here throughout our discussion. But if you can, like, ah, man, you got to read this. Like, this is this is like this is my favorite thing on Comic Key, honestly. Like, I mm-hmm. I guarantee you I will be keeping up with this one in some way, shape or form because I really need to see like how this ends. Uh, it's just it's it's really good. Yeah, wholeheartedly agree. I mean, I really love Girl Crush, but, like, this is super compelling. Ooh, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, overall, like, I, I really enjoyed a lot of the stuff we read on Comic Key, and uh, I, w- I would not say no to covering more simulpubs from Comic Key uh, when and if more show up in the future. Yeah. I mean, Comic Key 
has added a lot of titles, but a lot of them aren't quite simulpups yet. You know, like King and Azra, like Asobi, Azobaze. So whenever we do encounter something that is like close to being a simul or is immediately a simul, we'll definitely pick it up and uh, talk about it on the show. And then we'll wait for some of these other ones that have like kind of the, these longer backlogs and aren't quite up to date yet, like uh, those aforementioned examples. Mm-hmm. I said it in the last podcast episode when I uh, interrupted the show to talk about it, but man... I also really want to read King Gan Ashra at some point. I'm really glad that they've picked that up. I was I was not expecting that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, uh, we're done with all of our Simul pubs, huh? Yeah, looks like there is certainly a lot. Yeah, so uh, obviously, like we also said, uh, we will leave links in the show notes for uh, d- if any of these have caught your eye at all, and you're like, oh man, I really want to read some of these. We'll we'll leave links in the show notes for where people can read these. Please definitely go check out everything we uh, talked about in this podcast out. A lot of them were very, very good, and I enjoyed reading them. But uh, I know we're running kind of long, but I guess, uh, do you want to get into community shoutouts? Yeah, I have a few shoutouts I'd like to mention. First, I've been really enjoying Saber Spark's recent videos, including one where he discussed like, the situation with SpongeBob as a franchise right now, why he's hesitant to talk one way or another of like, what is quote-unquote rooting SpongeBob as like, the style of his videos usually are. But mainly he went over, well, here's a complicated situation of what we do and don't know of what Hillenberg's wishes were for SpongeBob as a series, and what the situation is with like these new spin-off shows that they're making, and how he feels about them. And I think it was a fair overview and assessment of the situation of like, like, yeah, like, there have been anecdotes from Hillenburg that says, like, hey, I, he didn't want to have spinoffs of Spongebob ever, particularly ones that was, like, a Spongebob 80s, as is uh, Cam Coral. But, you know, we don't have any recent statements that really say one way or the other. And so it's there's no really good way to, like, make a video on the topic that has a declarative say, this is wrong or this is not wrong. So I thought it was a fair assessment of, like, the complicated matter. Like, hey, how do we evaluate, like, what Nickelodeon is doing with SpongeBob and how to feel about it? But I've also been enjoying Saber Spark's new gaming channel, Saber Spark 64, that he started up recently. And in particular, he had a very sweet kind of vlog, I guess. It's not really a video essay, but it's just him reflecting on kind of how Kingdom Hearts as a game really helped him get through a difficult time in his life when his parents were going through divorce. Like kind of reflecting on his relationship with the franchise, what with the announcement of Sora being announced into Smash. And I thought it was a very sweet little essay that really taught well on the power that media can have as a form of escapism and a source of comfort in our lives. And I thought it was such a sweet video that I'd want to mention. I also just wanted to mention his gaming channel in general because it's a newer channel and I've uh, really been enjoying some of the videos he's been putting up on like uh, about game, video game controllers and mobile games and stuff. And uh, I also want to mention a new channel, Axo Beats. Uh, I've been following him for a while. I haven't really mentioned him yet, but he, you know, is mainly an Inuyasha expert. He reviews uh, any and does deep dives on Inuyasha and covers new episodes of Yashihime and stuff. And he recently covered the first chapter of the Yashihime manga. It was since I was been very curious, like what it was gonna be like, what Takashishina was gonna do with it. Like I really wanted to hear thoughts on it, and I really enjoyed like his overview of it and how it differs from the first episode of the and the foundation of the anime and like what Shina is doing differently in terms of like characterization, especially with Toa and how she fits 
Jensen and school at the beginning of the series and then the relationship with Setsuda, as well as like commenting on Sheena's art and designs and what's interesting about them. Like Toa has like a more fiercer expressions in the manga, which I thought was very interesting. It made me very excited to read the Ajahime anime because of these differences. And, you know, I'm really looking forward to checking out when the, it comes out now that this is licensed it, but I really like Axelbix's overviews and videos on Inuyasha and I thought like his manga one was a really good one, especially if you wanted to check out like and learn more about like what uh, the manga is like now and anticipation of the manga now going to be put out in English next year. So yeah, if you want like an early sneak peek of what it's like, I think that's a, he's a, that video is a great like overview of it. And, you know, speaking of uh, recent things, like of course there was uh, the big Dragon Ball Super superhero trailer uh, that came out at New York Comic Con. And yeah, you know, I watched the live stream that Anime AJ did with uh, Totally Not Mark. And I think they did a great job, like, kind of breaking down the trailer at the end of their, like, live stream of, like, things that, you know, are looking really well with the models, things that are looking not as polished in certain areas of the cuts we were shown in the trailer. I think they had, like, good comments on, like, the state of, like, you know, what we were told during the presentation of, like, what we can learn of what the story is like, what the animation will be like. So I think it was a good, like, live stream overview. That's a lot of fun if you haven't... Well, if you have seen the trailer, but you want some more deep dive thoughts and, like, a frame-by-frame look at uh, the trailer and breaking it down. And for a more compact take on the trailer... Definitely check out Masako X's uh, video as well, as he also like mainly gleamed upon story beats that could be parsed through from the trailer, the beat snippets we've seen. And yeah, I think that he had some pretty on-the-mark speculations uh, about like the story content, even though they're being a little, you know, mum about like what the actual story is. I think based on like the teaser trailer, you can sort of figure it out. I also really want to recommend Mercury Falcon's recent video. We recently had him on for Doro, uh, which you'll be listening to soonish. And he, I always like his content and his uh, look back on classic manga adaptations or Tatsunoko shows, Mushi Pro stuff. And he did a great video on Akira Tsuburaya, who is a director who is known as the director of a lot of kind of cheap-looking adaptations of Leiji Matsumoto works in the early 2000s and uh, he did a lot of them so you know you can learn about a lot of these more obscure or like less well regarded generally Leiji Matsumoto series he directed and uh, yeah I think it was a good overview and profile of his career and a lot of the stuff he did and you know speaking of uh, we mentioned Takao Saito earlier and he did do adaptations of Takao Saito's work dude he did like a Barum 1 adaptation which is like completely different from the manga or the Tokusatsu series which was interesting to hear about as well so I appreciated like uh, this video and overview of like this guy's oeuvre and like a lot of the the classic manga adaptations he was in charge of and like what was often so meanly kind of cheap looking about them or 
not as well done about them. And then finally, my last shout out I'll mention this time is, you know, Blur Noir did their big statistics in September uh, last month on Kenichi of the History Strongest Type Kenichi. And it was a really funny one that goes over, you know, what doesn't hold up and what doesn't really work about Kenichi's series, which uh, from my experience with it, I totally agree on the mark. And as always, as with their statistics, September reviews, very, very funny riffing on it. So Definitely wanted to shout that out, too. This is uh, one last other podcast uh, thing. So, yeah, that's uh, my shout-outs for this time. And uh, with that, I think we can head into the wrap-up of the show. Yeah, yeah. This was a very long episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Uh, it was nice to finally get to some of these simulpubs and one-shots. Uh, hopefully, we won't let them build up like this too much more often in the future but some sometimes it's hard to schedule these things along with the other podcasts we have to do so sometimes these things happen um but i still had a lot of fun recording this episode um i will say um nothing concrete yet but uh hopefully soon you guys will get to hear basically the next few episodes of the podcast where we uh maybe talk about some spookier manga titles for october we mentioned a few in this podcast, you know, thankfully thanks to Donna and Killer in Love, but yeah, you'll, we have some dedicated classic horror manga titles that hopefully will come out this one too. Yeah, uh, they'll probably bleed over into November a little bit, but you know what? If if the Simpsons can get away with a Treehouse of Horror Halloween special episode at the beginning of November, I don't know why we can't do Halloween stuff at the beginning of November too. It's fine. Yeah, though truthfully, they haven't done they've done it in October the past few years. Oh, really? I think okay. uh, it's been like a decade since they've done it in November. That shows you how much I keep up with The Simpsons. Oh, man. Um, but anyway, yeah, ho- hopefully you'll get to hear those soon. Um, we're, we're still kind of trying to plan out everything. Uh, and Not everything's concrete yet, but hopefully those will be coming out soon. But th- that's the plan anyway. But it will, we'll, we'll see, though. Um, so I just kind of want to put that out there. But yeah, until then, uh, yeah, we could just go ahead and end the show and let people know where they can find us. Uh, Lum, why don't we start with you? Where can the good people find you? You can find me at Lamariasha on Twitter. It's Lamariasha on a variety of places like Animation Revelation and Analyst, where it is uh, Lamariasha. That's where you can find me, and you can also find my writing and reviews on honorscom.com. We got a lot of books coming in, a lot of reviews going out, so check out all that stuff on there. That's all you're going to find the other podcasts I do, including my other movies, the show where we primarily talk about anime movies, and hashtag Lum Squad, the show where we talk about the wonderful working world of Rukutakashi's Years of Yatsura, having a lot of fun going through with his release of the manga, as well as the movies now they're on country wall so look forward to more episodes of that especially you know celebrated in the 40th anniversary of the anime which is a special occasion too and also you know if you like the art i do for the podcast the art and animations illustrations i make in journal you can find all that stuff on my instagram at set artworks all right but as for me i'm colton you could find me on twitter at SniperKing three two three. I also host and produce a few other podcasts on the site besides this one that you can find links to over at my personal blog at coltoncorner.wordpress.com. Over there, I have a page dedicated to whatever podcast I'm doing at the moment, uh, including past projects I'm not involved in anymore, and even some guest spots I've done recently and over the years. Um, So yeah, basically, if you're interested in any other podcast projects I'm a part of, again, please go to my personal blog at coltoncorner.wordpress.com. As for Manga Mavericks and the podcast in general, 
Uh, you can find every episode of Manga Mavericks at allcomic.com. That's where we post every episode first. Uh, unless you're a patron of ours at patreon.com slash manga mavericks, where at the $2 tier in particular, you will have access to select episodes of the podcast uh, depending on when they're edited. Basically, if we have an episode of the podcast that we have edited ahead of time of when we put it up on our main feed, we'll put it up on Patreon first for you guys to listen to before anyone else. Uh, admittedly, that is really kind of dependent on our schedules and like when we get certain things done and everything. So basically, if you want a more like reliable stream of content every month, uh, you basically want to sign up for a $5 tier where uh, we upload a new bonus podcast at the end of every month. Guaranteed, uh, our latest bonus podcast we have uploaded at the time of this recording is basically our discussion we have with our good friend Maxi Bernard of Friendship for Victory, not just on their thoughts on Barrage, uh, but also their thoughts on Kohei Horikoshi's original My Hero One-Shot, which is basically the prototype for My Hero Academia, written and illustrated all the way back in 2008. Uh, and yeah, in general, it's a good like cap off to our previous like Kohei Horikoshi month of podcasts. So if you've been listening to those podcasts and you uh, you kind of want a good cap off to that in particular, please go listen to that. We had a lot of fun recording that. Uh, and also j- just enjoy like our, our backlog of uh, different bonus podcasts we've done over the past like year or two uh, since we've uh, established the Patreon, essentially. Um, but yeah, you can find, again, all that and more at patreon.com slash manga mavericks. It's really the best way for you guys to support the show. And yeah, we appreciate any patronage you throw our way. It really helps us keep the lights on. And yeah, we just we just appreciate any support you give us. But basically, as for everything else, you can follow us on facebook.com slash all.comic or on twitter.com slash allcomic underscore. But if you want to follow manga mavericks specifically, you want to follow us on Twitter at manga underscore mavericks or on Tumblr at mangamavericks.tumblr.com for all the latest updates on the podcast. Subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash manga mavericks, where we post different excerpts of the podcast and even some exclusive content every once in a while. Again, that's at youtube.com slash manga mavericks. Uh, email us anything at manga mavericks at gmail.com. Uh, what are your thoughts on all the silo pubs and one shots we covered on this episode? Uh, what are you reading at the moment? Uh, what are you reading that you want us to read and talk about on the show? Email us anything about uh, manga or the podcast, uh, th- th- anything really. We'll read it on the show. We love getting emails. Again, that's at mangamavericks at gmail.com. But the most important thing, guys, is that you subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We're on a lot of different platforms at this point, uh, especially on Apple Podcasts, though. If you leave us a rating and a review, it really helps the visibility of our show and it helps it uh, helps make it basically helps uh, people find our podcast easier and just generally love getting feedback from you guys, positive or negative. Uh, whatever feedback you send us our way, uh, we want to use to make the show that much better. Uh, and yeah, I think that's going to be about it for this episode. Uh, this has been episode 178 of the Manga Mavericks podcast on allcomic.com. And we'll see you guys next time for episode 179. Bye, guys. Sayonara. Sayonara.